0: Who, who is the main opposition to prohibition? Immigrants who brought with them particular cultures that embraced wine. That particularist ethnic culture is what stopped that law from happening. Gay liberation of the 1970s, which by the way, every every libertarian, every, anybody who's interested in personal freedom at all, that should be the high, high watermark of personal liberty in this country, I think it was. AIDS comes along, they get terrified for obvious reasons, for good reasons of doing this kind of thing anymore. And this is a famous quote from Larry Kramer. Instead of fucking in the bushes, why don't we get married and be Americans? Helicopter parenting, we invented that. That's our thing. That's Gen X. And the theory is that it's because we came out of the first generation, which divorce was common.
1: Hi, hi. Welcome, welcome. This is the From the New World podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Thaddeus Russell, who's an interesting libertarian. He, I would say, is a philosopher, he's a podcaster, and he has an interesting perspective that I think represents a faction of conservatism or of libertarianism that just really wants to see fun in the world again. You'll see exactly what I mean when we get to the episode. That's the framing as we discuss uh, party politics, libertarian coalitions, Mental illness and whether that's uh, constructed, pandemic measures, social media censorship, and whether there are coming realignments. It is really a fascinating topic that, quite honestly, I wasn't thinking enough about. And I think this episode somewhat demonstrates that we definitely got very far off from my original prep. But it's still very worth hearing Thaddeus' perspective. I think that you can see a whole new way of thinking of the world that doesn't really interact with any kind of existing partisan spectrum, and there's a lot to learn, even if you disagree with it. Of course, the best way to help the show is to let a friend know, either in person or online. And with that, here's Thaddeus Russell. Right. so so I think I first heard of you uh through jeff schollenberger um mm. a mutual mm. friend and I, and yeah. I think that yeah it, it's it's very funny i w- when I was preparing for this episode I had you know i Mandela affected myself into thinking that I had an interview with jeff schollenberger uh on this on this podcast but but I haven't I've been on his podcast twice but he's never uh, oh. He's never been here, so maybe maybe that should happen in the future. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I think of uh, both of you among the space of kind of um, would you would you call yourself a, a postmodern conservative? <laughs> uh,
0: I um I think labeling oneself um in politics is a is never a good idea. And so I, I avoid that. And we can talk about why I think it's a bad idea, but I, I don't label myself. I'm willing to talk about my influences and I'm certainly happy to talk about uh, my pos- particular positions on particular issues and how they might correspond with an, uh, some particular ideology on that. So I, on public policy, on economics, and on sort of the state I'm pretty straightforward libertarian. Um, however, there's much more to life than public policy and economics in the state. So, I, on sort of more philosophical questions, I guess you could say, yes, I am very much a man from Foucault and sort of the postmodernist turn generally. And um, I did quite a bit of work on queer theory back when it was being developed in the 90s, actually. So I was one of the the first people to sort of use queer theory academically. And um, also, I did actually use some critical race theory as well, although I wouldn't call myself a critical race theorist, but I've certainly been influenced by that way of thinking about culture in general, race and gender. Yeah, I'm quite a uh, lefty pomo on those issues. So that's me in a nutshell, I suppose. Um, but then I have my own, of course, takes unique takes on various issues that I think are pretty much only mine, but that's, right. yeah, I mean, I would never, I, conservative is never a word I would use. I am. I love classical conservatives. I love paleo conservatives. I, I love traditionalist uh, Christians and Orthodox Christians and that whole movement, trad, trad- Caths too. I I have a lot of affection for those guys and a lot of affection for their positions, and um, I defend them all the time. And I want them to flourish because big sort of big picture, my thing is decentralism. I want to decentralize right. political power. That's to me the most important task at hand. And that's what theirs is as well, you know, sort of not, not ideologically necessarily, but the, what they are doing, what what the classical conservatives and the, the Orthodox Christians are doing is establishing essentially autonomous, independent communities. And so the more that we have and the more that sort of spirit we have of, of wanting to establish a society among the people that we know personally who might even live near us and rejecting ideas of universalism and especially universal morality and especially egalitarian universalist morality, I think is a good thing. So that's right. Right. This that's is, me.
1: This is very fascinating to me good. because I, I've only paid attention to politics very mm. recently, kind of late okay. Obama into Trump. Cool. Okay. And I get the impression looking backwards like this is what people tell me that this was always the spirit of the right or or, let's say like let's say i I mean like curtis yarvin has this great line like the the right is sort of like the term gentiles right it just refers to anyone who's not of the left yeah um but but i i respect like the under like I, i do think you know your positions and my positions as well are more complicated than just you know you know, like vaguely, vaguely conservative or vaguely libertarian. Right. Um, so yeah, for for this conversation, I'll try not to. I'll try not to do that. But but let's say like the, the non the non left. Uh-huh. You know. Um, uh, let's say the outsiders looking in. You know, uh, has always to me had this, or or like looking back to me ha- seems to have this aesthetic, even before the policies matched. Right. If you look at like the the, the Freedom mm-hmm. Caucus,
0: mm-hmm. Right, or the
1: Tea Party, this mm-hmm. seems like a movement that had, in terms of policy, a very institutional, kind of technocratic approach, but in terms of, uh, in in terms of affect, in terms of style, mm-hmm. was a type <laughs> of predecessor to Trump. Or a mm-hmm. predecessor to you know like current modern day culture wars for sure. Uh, do do you think do you think that that's true or do you think oh. that that's a kind of like post hoc rewriting of what it oh was God. like back then?
0: I think actually that might be the most important thing in politics, believe it or not, and it's completely underappreciated. Yeah, and I'm glad you are maybe the only person other than me who thinks this way. I I think that aesthetics and I think also psychodynamics are really what's always going on in politics. Um, we articulate internal struggles, <clears throat> internal drama, and project it onto the world and make that politics. But a huge part of that is aesthetics, right? It's the way we feel and experience and smell the world um, is what is actually most important to us in the way that we think, and the way that we move, and the way that our attitudes are shaped, and about everything. And you can see this with the Trump derangement syndrome, you know, very, very clearly anybody who's not in the CIA or the FBI or the DNC who is anti-trump talks almost exclusively about essentially his aesthetics right it's his his use of vulgar language um, his you know his t- spray tan very much offends them um, the hair the whole thing you know his his sort of the way he talks about women and sex, right? These are all sort of aesthetic crimes for your typical middle-class liberal. And that is what enrages them. They don't know at all what his policies on Ukraine um, are. They don't know anything really about his policies, of course. But they know all about what the guy looks like, what he sounds like, the things he says, the way he says them. Of course, that is the most important thing about Trump. Is that he says things in ways that are aesthetically unappealing to the typical middle class liberal in this country? You know, I mean, in fact, it's funny. A lot of the things he has that are literally exactly things that Democrats have said in the past, but they got got away with it. You know, it's just because Trump is aesthetically repugnant, I believe, to these people that he gets he gets targeted. The reason that <clears throat> there has been such a sustained, uh, coordinated. Enduring hatred of the guy is that it has been, I think, coordinated and initiated from the top, from the intelligence agencies who don't give a shit about his aesthetics. They care that he's going to take the United States out of NATO, or at least they're afraid of it. Interesting.
1: But before we before yeah. we uh, jump to that, I think the aesthetics are important. So so there's there's the first layer, right? There's the first layer of of, of the argument which is something like, uh, something like, yeah, it's Trump derangement syndrome. Uh-huh. It's people who are just so overwhelmed by his affect and by his kind of uh, vulgarity, as you say, that they just can't think straight. But there, there's a second layer, or let's say like, and there's a second layer of this, right? Which I think you alluded to, which is that the aesthetics themselves are actually important. That you oh, know, yeah. someone, you know, Trump, Trump, without the, you know, Trump's policy agenda without Trump is actually different, would actually get different results, Mm. would actually be, you know, Mm. a different, a different political force. Mm. Right. Uh, I I kind of want to zoom in on that topic a bit. I mean, do do you think there's credibility in that, right? Do do you think there's credibility in the idea that, you know, if you have a kind of charismatic leader, even if he's proposing the same policies, that. Mm. That might change, you know, for for the better or for the worse. Uh, How how his supporters Mm. react, how his allies react, how his administration functions, and so on.
0: Yeah, it's funny. So I'm Mr. Pomo, postmodernist here. Mr. You know, aesthetics is everything here, but I'm also kind of in my heart, um, I am sort of a rationalist, positivist, Enlightenment thinker kind of guy. My father was a was a computer scientist, um, programmer way back in the sixties and seventies, he was like one of the first computer programmers in the world. And so he's got that, he's got that basically Asperger's personality. And in which the only thing that matters is the digits and how they line up and the logical progression and, you know, the rational coherence. I have many such
1: friends. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: And like you could, I mean, yeah. they have no clue what people are actually feeling, <laughs> <laughs> no, no clue what other people are feeling they they know very well you know what they've said, and they have an index of what of the words they have said um and they're killer with numbers. but in terms of the way that people feel and especially the way they feel the world uh they're clueless so I'm that guy at heart I've just sort of added on these um these interests in psychodynamics and culture since then, and I have never liked how limited. That way of looking at the world is, which you'll find especially in politics. Right, a lot of political people, in particular political radicals, on the left and the right, tend to be Aspergers types. And I don't mean that. I don't. I don't mean that as a medical term. I mean that as a personality type. There is absolutely a personality type um, that is right. Right. Is many Asperger's. many
1: people in the podcast included. You know? Oh in-
0: indeed yeah so so yeah. i'm just thinking as you were talking i was thinking that's really interesting because i of course am defending um or i'm saying that what i care about is the policies damn it you know and i'm so upset with the left for ignoring what is actually policies are let's have a debate on the issues right that's and that is very virtuous and i do basically i'm in politics i do wish people would do that more at the same time though yeah i am sa- i'm arguing that aesthetics is important as you said but it's also important for me. Now, I suppose one of the things, one of the reasons that I am not anti Trump and I'm not pro Trump, but I, I, there are certainly aspects of him that I, that I like. I was going to, no, I would never say admire, but I certainly, I appreciate and I enjoy, I guess is really the word. I enjoy the way that he violates all the norms of civility. You know, I do like that. I grew up in the 70s and 80s when there were three, TV networks and all the newspapers said exactly the same thing, and everybody said the same thing in media. And you know, I hate it and they all had that particular kind of formal culture. If you looked like an anchorman in the 80s or 70s, they sort of all had this particular style. Same was true for journalism and the way the articles were written. there was this, all these norms of civility within it. aesthetic. these are aesthetic norms that no one ever talked about, but you just sort of were expected to to abide by them. And then of course, in academia where I went, spent 10 years at Columbia University in various, and then I was a professor after that. So I just, and I, the thing I hated the most, and I've actually written about this. The thing I hated the most was how um, aesthetically indifferent, I guess, academics are. Again, they're completely people of the mind. These are left-wingers, but they have that same sort of Asperger type personality. I just, I felt so stifled by it. And so one of the things I really actually like about Trump is that he just bursts right through that stuff because he is not from sort of the political radical world. He is not from academia. He's not from any of those worlds. And he actually sort of has a working class, even though he was born a million uh, to a multimillionaire, he has a working class New York ax, uh, affect. But I think that's... Right. I think it's legitimate, actually. I think you can be a rich person and, ha- and be working class culturally. And I think that's Trump. In fact, I know it's Trump. I mean, his, his tastes... And his style are, are definitely American working class. And that's exactly why so many working class people love him. It's not, I think, his policy on Ukraine that working class people in America love about Trump. I think it's that he, without saying the word, says fuck you to the establishment and all their little rules that have always been markers of power, but also markers of class and in the war in the elite world of America you have to demonstrate not just the correct position on ukraine you also have to speak correctly you have to say the proper words and you have to dress in a particular way and you have to talk about women in a very particular way and you have to talk about black people in a very particular way and if you simply refuse to abide by those rules, those very clear linguistic rules, you're you're immediately cast out and you're seen as a demon, and that 's Trump. and you're also considered to be unworthy, and this is where it comes down, this is where the rubber hits the road, you're deemed to be unworthy of holding political power if you like NASCAR, you know if you talk about uh, the greatness of Mexicans because of their taco bowls. If you say my African- American over there all the things you're not supposed to say none of which is technically racist or even you know consequential in any way but it's sort of they <clears throat> to them that just shows that you are internally a bad person and therefore unworthy of power so I I like that about Trump um, even though I do like what he has been saying about Ukraine and and other policies um, maybe I think what the most the most important thing, about him is that he just demolished crashed through that edifice that massive edifice of civility and decorum that has dominated all political discourse certainly in this country since the birth of the country this is the way you know you were you have been expected to talk the way that barack obama talks and comport yourself the way that Barack Obama comported himself. Barack Obama is the perfect American politician in those ways. Not just that he's black, but that he does everything exactly right. There's like no sexuality emanating from him at all. You have no clue. <laughs> you have no clue what he and Michelle do in the bedroom, or even what what Barack likes sexually. Not a clue. We do know what Trump likes. You know, he's talked about his damn daughter. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's talking we, about his, how his daughter is hot, right? <laughs> These are things oh, you're not supposed goodness. to do. I mean of course that politically it doesn't matter at all yeah. what the president thinks about it, but they do matter tremendously because again the elite doesn't want you speaking this way and also um, it kind of it, it it also dictates what the norms will be in our society for all people. What we teach our children when they're little about how to behave, much of that comes from the top. Much of many of those ideas are dictated to us by the political leaders and maybe by the school teachers who are employed by the political leaders, right? We look at the elites for how to behave. And about half the country has done that, has done that. And I was, I still am, but I certainly was a very much a part of that. I was just trying to behave in proper ways so that I could advance and ultimately be a writer for the New York Times. Like, that was actually my career goal, and I knew that it required doing that to get it. um, It turns out, we found out in 2016, that about half the country has never been a part of that world, has never been interested in abiding by those norms, has lived very differently, and has thought very differently about stuff like what you should wear and how you should speak, but certainly about things like race and gender, um... They just don't, they have not followed that code of ethics that has been laid down by the liberal establishment since World War II about race and gender in particular. That, those have been the most important markers of a person's virtue, is what you have to say about black people and women. And what, yeah, and when it's about race, and by the way, it's always about black people. It's always about what you think and say about black people. And it, it, Latinos and Asians and everybody else, whatever, they don't care. It's about black people and your attitudes about them. That tells you everything the liberal needs to know about you so right, i it's interesting yeah it's, it's it's really
1: interesting sorry sorry go on
0: no no go ahead
1: yeah it, it's it's really interesting because even just looking at you know like the underpants gnomes thing you know like the the kind of um the, there's this meme online that's like mm. uh that that's like these these like small gnomes uh it's from like some comic mm. i think and they have, you know, they have a plan to to get rich. And the plan is, number one, uh, steal underpants. Number two, uh, question mark. Number three, profit. You know, that's the meme. And I'm not sure you've seen it. Uh, but there's, uh. like, no middle part, right? They don't know what they're doing in the middle to get rich. Uh, that that oh. does seem kind of like our, like, actual history. Because, mm-hmm. you know, like, it, this, it's a very weird, you know, backwards analogy. But... You know, who, who else was a very kind of vibrant, you know, sexually unambiguous, maybe a little too much mm. um, person uh, was Bill Clinton, right? Yes. It was, uh, yes. yeah, 19,
0: well, 1996. Okay, very know? different. No, 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 but wait, no. So actually, Bill Clinton was fundamentally different on these questions. Yes, we all know that Bill Clinton was a horn dog who had sex with all kinds of women. It almost seems like almost every opportunity. And we have tons of evidence for that. But look at the way that he comported himself in public as president. Hmm. Right. He did everything he possibly could right down to redefining the word is (laughs) (laughs) to avoid the appearance of being improper. Trump doesn't do that. He doesn't care (laughs) about being improper. In fact, he kind of likes being improper. He talks about his damn daughter's sexual being hot in public like on camera. He knows the camera's running when he says it. So that's the difference. Bill Clinton just couldn't control his urges, right? But he wanted to desperately. And because he understood damn well that to become president of the United States, you have to. That and in fact that is what almost brought him down. I mean, if it hadn't been for that, the sexual stuff with Clinton he would have been uh, maybe the most popular president in history because he happened to be presiding over the nineteen nineties when everything was going well. This was that this was the, right. this was the, the heyday right. of America in many ways. The nineteen nineties. Um, so, yeah. Um, no, no. He he did everything he could right to hide that. Obama right. was and simply Obama was simply. It's about repression, right? This is this comes down to Sigmund Freud's okay. whole thesis about civilization. Which is that civilization, any civilization, requires repression, in particular of sexuality, sexual urges, but also of people's violent urges. Right. Right. We can't have a civil, I mean, it just sort of makes sense on its face. You know, we can't have a civilization. You can't have roads and bridges and law uh, if people are given over to their sexual desires and their, and their desires to do violence to people. These are two things that we feel every single day. You know, I think you could argue that we feel them maybe all day long every day, but what we do is we repress them all day long in the service of civilization because we know that there will be chaos and, and the bad kind of anarchy if people's instincts are allowed free reign. So Freud said that's what civilization has always done from the beginning, has instilled repression as a virtue. We think of repression as a virtue. Obama hiding his sexuality, we consider to be good and virtuous. Donald Trump not hiding his sexuality and his urges is the opposite, right? So that's because civilization demands it. So it's not just America, even, it's really all civilizations. Now, civilizations have different um, degrees of repression. So in France, of course, for instance, they don't care if their prime minister or their president has a mistress. But There's still a high degree of repression, even in French politics, you know, because, you know, they all wear business suits, which is the symbol of repression, by the way. It was invented for that purpose in the 19th century. And they speak with proper, the proper French accent and diction and all that. And of course, there's a whole set of norms about race and gender that they also abide by. Again, Trump ignored all those. And this is why the rank and file of the Democratic Party hates him. But the reason that there has been a sustained anti-Trump campaign, and it's been so powerful and unrelenting, and it's now, what, seven, eight years now? Seven years? Is that, as I mentioned earlier, for the the actual, actual political elite, the people who run the country, and especially its foreign policy, which means that they run mostly the world because America is dominant, um, they freaked out when Donald Trump started talking about NATO and about more broadly about how he didn't want the United States doing regime change wars and he didn't want the United States occupying other countries for extended periods. That's when they decided he had to go. It wasn't because they said, he said the thing about pussies. It was that he was threatening the damn American empire, which has been the thing Every American political leader since Thomas Jefferson has been committed to, first and foremost, is the expansion and maintenance of the American global empire. Every president in American history has signed on fully to the idea that the United States should and must essentially rule the world and should bring everybody else in the world up to American standards of life right? This is why we're always talking about democracy, taking democracy to these other countries, right? Even though like the vast right. majority it's of people the, have never the, been Yeah, there's
1: definitely a kind of, you know, military industrial okay. complex. No, but it, comes from a, a, no but it comes from an evangelical
0: you know, idea. No, it no, it comes from an evangelical idea. Yeah, no, it's this is a secular Christianity. The idea of American exceptionalism is that we are obligated because we live so well- and we think so correctly, we are obligated to go out into the world, find people who don't live like that and don't think like that and change them and make them like us. Because this is, we know that being American is the best way to be. We just know this. And so it is. Our, it's to let to allow other people to not live like we do is criminal. It's a sin. This is actually how American elites have thought since, as I said, the founding. And you can look it up. I mean, this is, this is, is, and it's not just speeches. This is what drives these people. Dick Cheney divested himself from Halliburton before he went to war in Iraq. How much money could Dick Cheney have made if he had stayed in Halliburton instead of being vice president, right? He, it's never, same with Bush, same with Bush, W. Bush. Hello? He was handed an oil dynasty, but he chose to be president and get a $500,000 a year salary. Um, what? You know, it's never an economic interest. They do. They are interested in the economic strength of the United States. So that's why they got the oil. Yeah, they understood that the United States needed the oil in order to be the global empire. Right. You can't run the world if you don't have oil. They understood that. But that's not it wasn't about getting rich, not as individuals. It was about getting rich as a country. These people are actual nationalists. They really do care about this thing called America, and they are fully committed to expanding America as far as they can. Because just like Jesus, who said, go out and convert all nations, they think that it is their duty to go out and convert all nations to Americanism. Absolutely. So that's, and except for Trump. Except for Trump, he was the first one to say, "Yeah, you know, I don't really, I don't know about that," and he kind of said it in that way, <laughs> as if he were sitting right. on his couch watching TV. You know, he's just yeah, yeah. fascinating do
1: that. to me? Yes. Yeah, so, so what's so fascinating <laughs> to me about this is that, of of course, for a very long time, this was the Republican, uh, th- this was the Republican rallying cry. Right. Uh, of policy uh. policy interventionism, you know, it, it's it's part of the three legged stool. It, it's part of the Reagan coalition. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and in fact, predated it.
0: No. And that's that's not true.
1: There's. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so the, this well, was very much uh, a question of respectability. Um, you know, it, it wasn't you know, it wasn't a, a partisan thing. It was it, it was a very it, it was a very bipartisan let me, question of respectability. Oh, and then well, th- we've ended up here. So, so do you believe in the kind of like, like, like Trump, Trump causation? Do, do you think that it's mostly on him? Or do you think like the Republican Party, you know, some other people say it was economic factors, it's because of, you know, um, decline in rural areas, you know, J.D. Vance is, talks about this in his book, um, or, or, or some third thing, why do you why do you think that? Why do you think it ended up being the Republicans who who are uh, kind of defying civility norms now? Mm.
0: Again, it all comes down to, well, okay, so there's two two pieces to this. The Trump question is, to me, it's about foreign policy and it's about culture, which is what we've been talking about. Those are the two things to understand Trump with. So why do the high elites hate him? It's because of foreign policy. Why does everyone else hate him within the Democratic coalition? It's because of his hair and all the things. (laughs) Well, it's really. Yeah, I mean, it's all the things. Right, that, right. It's the, the stuff we culture. talked about. It's the. Yeah, same. yeah, yeah. Uh, why why have Republicans emerged as the locus of nationalist populism? Right. Which has been the sort of not just a Trump movement, but it's a like global mo- movement. It's fascinating. It's This is happening all over the world. You know, you have especially in Europe, you have very large movements of people who are calling themselves and are, are called nationalist populists um, and that's that is sort of the large category that Trumpism fits within. and Maga is very much a part of this. Um, why why are why is it, why is that Sprouted from the Republican Party? I think it is because the Republican Party, for a long time, has represented uh, very wealthy people and working class people who did not go to college. The Democrats took control of the universities in the 1940s and 50s and have not let go of them one bit. There is basically every elite university in this country effectively operates as a training ground for the Democratic National Committee. I mean, it just does. I mean, it's and certainly if you look at the foreign policy, the international relations schools in all these big universities, they are 100 percent Democrat in their outlook. And I I need to correct a little one thing about Republicans and Democrats on foreign policy. So the Democrats have never once um, stepped away from their commitment to the American empire as the most important thing in American politics, never once. They only differed after Vietnam with the tactics for maintaining the empire Vietnam, they saw, was a massive mistake, which, by the way, they created. It was John F. Kennedy and Lyndon Baines Johnson's war, right? They created the war. They saw that it just blew up in their faces, almost literally. So they said, now we've got to go a little softer for a while on the communists and let them sort of fall on their own accord. But the Democrats never said, let's, let's uh, take our military out of the world. The military bases in the, in the world just kept growing, the number of military bases all around the world. And that was a democratic idea. Uh, The Democrats and then more importantly, the Democratic Party, they created the American empire. This is the party. This is Woodrow Wilson's thing, right? This is Franklin Roosevelt's thing. America will bestride the globe. That was their idea in order to lift up. See, it's a liberal idea of lifting up the impoverished around the world. We will lift them up and make them better and happier. That's what.
1: Is that, it a liberal it, idea though, or is it a yeah. Christian idea, or it, are those it, indistinguishable?
0: Exactly. So to me, right. mo- okay. modern American modern American liberalism, and especially the progressivism within it, there's sort of the kind of the harder edged version of liberalism. The people who really think about this stuff and really care about it um, is secularized Christianity. It's the same moral structure, just without the spiritual stuff so or the metaf- the metaphysical stuff i should say yeah so
1: yeah the, the thing is i i'm wondering about i'm really wondering about this because you know like republicans were 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 the party of foreign policy interventionism it's like no it it does not seem i i i'm kind of confused at what you mean by liberal here right like is george w bush no, a liberal
0: so again this is this is a very common misunderstanding of of american political history um okay so as I said, between the Vietnam War, which ended in 1973, effectively, from 1973 until Clinton, until the 90s, okay? So it's just a, just two decades, just 20, less than 20 years, really. The Democrats did not say, oh, we should no longer have an empire and we should pull back all of our bases. No. No, they said, no, we got to do it differently because of Vietnam. Vietnam was a real wake-up call for the liberals. And again, Vietnam, the Vietnam War was the Democratic Party's idea. That was their thing. That was Kennedy and Johnson, and it was their idea. I mean, they literally thought it up. These were Democrat liberal professors who thought up the Vietnam War and conducted it and ran it. Um, so for twenty years, the Democratic Party said, "Yo, well, let's 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 just slow down. Let's not necessarily intervene everywhere in the world because it it might backfire on us." Um, but they never once gave up on the idea that the that America should be dominant. Never once. And so when Clinton took office, you know what he said about foreign policy? He said, we need to go back to our roots. He said, the Democratic Party is the party of World War One intervention. It's the party of World War II <laughs> intervention. It's the party of the Korean War intervention. And it's the party of the Vietnam War intervention. Hello, what have the Republicans done in terms of intervention? No, the Iraq War. Which, by the way, was dreamed up by people who are now in the Democratic Party, the neocons.
1: Right, right.
0: And they always were. They, those guys, the neocons, all started out either as socialists or uh, Roosevelt liberals, New Dealers. All of them. Crystal, Podoric, all those cats were all liberals or leftists. And so they came back home. They came back home when the Democrats decided to go hard again on expanding the American empire, Bill and Hillary, that was their main thing, was getting America going again in the rest of the world. That's why NATO expanded. After the end of after the Soviet Union collapses, communism is dead. And this thing that they created just to stop the Soviet Union, the NATO, has to be not only maintained, but expanded, doubled, tripled. What? That was Clinton's idea. That was the liberals' idea. The Republican Party historically and this is getting this is answering your question specifically about why why is maga in the republican party the republican party has historically had within it what has been called an isolationist impulse it's that's it's often been a misnomer these are people who weren't opposed to like interacting with other countries they just didn't want to send the military into other countries but there were many, many people in the Republican Party until the 1960s and 70s who were like Ron Paul on foreign policy. I mean, they were just constantly saying, wait, why? And they even opposed entry into World War Two. These guys, I'm talking about senators, United States senators and congresspeople who until the very last minute, they ended up voting for it. But they were opposed to going into that war until until Pearl Harbor. And. Yeah, so that's that's a history, that's that's a that's those are the roots of the Republican Party, Midwestern, very nativist, very America first, very concerned about the here and now. It comes out of a farming tradition, I think, which is that you you have to be your your concern is overwhelmingly about your farm, which is about your town, which is about your state. You're not worried about what's going on in Southeast Asia, nor should you be. You don't think it's your business. So there's a this so MAGA has tapped into that those roots of the Republican Party that some people call isolationist. I would just call it non-interventionist or anti-interventionist. Um, but so there, that's why it feels very organic and authentic. Actually, for the Republicans to be talking, for MAGA people to be talking this way, they're very much representative of Republican Party history. So that's it.
1: Right, and it feels like the kind of Scots Irish aesthetic <laughs> or
0: do, do, do you know people.
1: about this, the kind of internal, internal migration patterns? This is something that's, that's becoming more popular recently as well. Um, in kind of similar circles, mm-hmm. but um, like the, the, there's this book, Albion seed documenting the sure. different, you know, tribes of settlers and their kind of personality. Types. Sure. So I'm, uh, de- I'm
0: descended from the Scots Irish settlers in the South, the Russell or not at the Russell's, my mother's family. Was from North Carolina, Scots Irish, um, and um, yeah, there was the whole. You, I guess you're getting at the sort of uh, Thomas Sowell thesis about
1: uh, not exactly. So, so, there's like two versions of this, right? Well, one is yeah. one is the kind of like J.D. Vance version about decline, yeah. and, and the other version is the kind of um, folk libertarian version about kind of uh, about freedom. And about you know opposition to state intervention, essentially that that you know there, there's the kind of Yankee vision of universalism, very much what you were describing before, and the Scots Irish vision of kind of you know don't tread on me. Oh. <laughs> that, that's a little bit of a caricature, but but yeah. a, kind of localism.
0: I the um, whole the whole Scots Irish. Thing I don't know, and again, I'm descended from these people, but you know, the don't tread on me. So, Scots Irish why are they called the Scots Irish? Because they were fucking imperialists because they they went to they originated in Ireland. Um, I mean, they originated in Scotland, excuse me, they originated in Scotland and they went over to Ireland, an entirely different uh, island, and colonized it in the north which was the cause of, you know, hundreds of years of what were called the Troubles, (laughs) you know, Um, and oppressed and discriminated against the Catholic majority there, holding on to the uh, Northern Ireland colony, essentially, it was what it was. So I don't know, saying that they they represent kind of the original don't tread on me ethos, I don't quite buy it. I mean, I need to see more on this, but I I don't know.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. (laughs) I've yeah, I should ask. I should ask Garrett Jones this when he uh, when he eventually yeah. comes back. Yeah, ask the him podcast.
0: about ask him about uh, Ulster. Ask him about Northern Ireland. You know what was that about? If these people are about you know being autonomous and independent for themselves, I suppose, but they don't mind conquering other people. Is that what is that? Maybe that is the American way. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know.
1: yeah, yeah. Maybe that does make sense. Right.
0: So anyway, so, um, but why why do I mean, you're sort of getting at the American character here if there is such a thing. Yes, right? Right. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's I don't mind talking about things like that. Of course, it's a massive generalization. And I mean, goodness, you, all you have to do is think for five seconds about the people who actually live here and how they think to wonder if there is anything, you know, like an American character or even culture. I mean, there are so many different because we're a land of immigrants we you know just there alone we have so many different cultures but then the black black culture has remains um utterly distinct from the dominant culture and always has been i mean radically different than the dominant culture and i say i mean like working class black culture i don't mean barack right. obama yeah uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the stuff that rep- is represented in hip-hop you know i mean that is <laughs> has always been totally different i mean that is if there's an American character, you may have noticed that it never includes black people. Like, and <laughs> it's always about kind of what the politicians think and say. So, I think there's, I do think there's absolutely been a very, and I sort of said this earlier, a very tightly defined and well-regulated ideology, um, and personality and aesthetics, very identifiable um, within the elite, the political elite. Right. You have to be a certain way and you have to have very particular ideas to become our leader. And you can see this. Just look at politicians who aren't named Trump. They all look alike. They all sound alike. They all have the same ideas. I mean, there's hardly any difference except for the MAGA people. MAGA is the very first. um, I would say radical. Challenge. To the American political establishment that has been successful. Um, by electing a president and by having a, a major sort of movement going on that is, you know, all the Democrats want to talk about is MAGA. So you, clearly you think it's
1: been successful.
0: Well, they got a president <laughs> elected. Yeah. I mean, they have. suffered. Okay,
1: fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah.
0: I mean, they've suffered unbelievable. Consequences for doing that, right? I mean, the, the punishment yeah, yeah, is twenty that, four seven. That's 24/7. kind of what I'm alluding to. I, oh, I'm yeah. not
1: Sure, that they're in a better place now, I, you know, than, than they were before.
0: Well, I mean, it's the only way they're going to stop, be stopped is if Trump goes to prison. You know, because he's going to win. I think the election. I mean, he's certainly the the clear favorite right now. Um, but he could even run for president from prison, which is what I'm hoping will happen. Which is what you I think.
1: I think the way that the, the charges are set up um no, no matter what the the trial and none of the cases will terminate before the election so he'll be he'll he'll be running and then you, you know like it'll be very interesting if he becomes president Wait, and then
0: really is this true that he can't go to prison before the election
1: yeah I, i'm pretty sure why I'm would they do sure, that uh i have it huh. I, why would I they structure it, it that way uh, i don't have it on hand as well but I think in in some of the news articles, they were talking about the um,
0: I wonder why they did that.
1: The actual, um, you know, the, the the time frame that they would have for sentencing him or for, you know, f- f- uh, actually going through the trial. Right. Because these are not, you know, these are not very um, <laughs> they're not very fast courts uh, and they're very long uh, cases.
0: Well, except that. No, but except they only gave him 90 days. To prepare, so they're clearly rushing it. I mean, they want it to happen soon. No, I I think they want to put him in prison before the election. I'm pretty sure about that. Isn't that the whole point of this stuff? (laughs) Is to stop him from running?
1: I'm not sure. You know, like like we were talking about this earlier. I don't think it's so rational. I I think that you know, a lot of people, a lot of people think that he must be guilty of something. A lot of people see him, and and some of the like the documents stuff. You know, like. Uh, I, I'm convinced. I'm not sure that he should go for, go to jail for that, but I'm like somewhat convinced. You know, like so someone nice. tells me, you know, like Donald Trump didn't follow the proper procedures for declassifying documents. That's not so surprising to me. No,
0: you know, but neither so, did so Biden. So like people looking. Neither sorry? did Bi- but neither did Biden. Neither did Pence. Neither did like a half a dozen other presidents. They've all fucked up with the documents. This is such a trivial charge.
1: Yeah, that, that that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, um, but yeah, like uh, I do think a lot of it is just people, you know, people trying to to find what they can find. I, I don't think it's so coordinated. I, I don't oh, think there there there's a really really, really a plan there.
0: <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah it, it doesn't look that. I mean, huh? Here's the here's the thing that I there's huh. like two there's there's two uh, dimensions to to this question which is usually highly correlated there's like the dimension of like how willing are people to suspend basically like neutral judgment how people how how like willing are people to have one standard for you know biden and for for their own party and one standard for trump right or for people who you know disrespect the kind of civility and Mm -hmm. how willing and how like organized and coordinated and centralized is it And usually people either think, you know, like, like, like people will think, you know, they're they're completely uncoordinated and they would never, you know, they they would never stoop so low as to have, you know, a double standard in the law. And, and then there's the other side, which is, you know, not only do they have a double standard in the law, but they're, they're all working together in order to undermine uh, the rule of law and go after Trump. No, like, I know some people or like I, I know some people who have been in you know various intelligence agencies who have had you know tech contacts or, or who've yes. worked in tech companies and had exposure to them. <clears throat> yes. You know, it's very ham fisted. That that's what okay. I would say. Okay. You know, it's it's very much, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. it's very much like product product management. Do you know like the <clears throat> the, the kind of like tech like product management thing? Which is bit. basically, you know, you have a queue of tasks. Right. You, you know, if you've ever used like, uh, use like Trello or whatever, you know, you have a queue of tasks, you Uh you put the tasks on the board, and then you try to do the tasks. That to me is how like every, every, and not just Democrats, like Republicans operate like this too. Right. Republicans, you know, people in general, they have a goal. They're like, here are the things I want to do with the goal, you know, and a lot of that is going to be biased. You know, I I think that that's kind of inevitable, even outside of the current political circumstance. Okay. Maybe right now it's like particularly biased, right? right. But people are going to say, you know, like, well, there are a few things I want to get done. I'm just going to try one of them. Uh, And I'm not really going to, like, the the thing that I really, um, I'm very skeptical of is you know, basically this idea of like kind of almost military style coordination, because mm-hmm. that to me is not, it's just gotcha. not the pattern gotcha. of attacks on Trump. It's so ham-fisted. A lot of the attacks also make Trump stronger. So, like, so it's, I think, it's not, it's yeah. not, it's not so strategic. It's, so it's I just think, kind of like an emotional thing.
0: Yeah. So I think it is both highly coordinated and centralized and incompetent. It's both. Hmm, interesting. I mean, you, we, before we started recording, and you just sort of said this, you, you know the, about the intelligence agencies' control over the media, right? I mean, that, Yeah, that, yeah.
1: Uh, we were talking about social media for context. Yeah. There's this great article by Jacob Siegel, who yeah. I also interviewed a few weeks ago, um, a guide to understanding the hoax of the century. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. he talks about the explicit coordination with all these intelligence agencies and mm-hmm. companies like Twitter, uh, Facebook, Google. And it really is—it really is quite damning. What kind of passes for um, evidence or passes for you know uh, justification for this kind of coordination?
0: Yeah, so- and, and I should
1: say there's been a, there's been a recent court case, Missouri v. Biden, that um, mm-hmm. uh, hopes to restrain these kind of actions. That's right. But uh, yeah, I, I do think that. Yeah, I, I guess I should talk about in more detail what i mean by kind of like coordination okay so when we think of coordination we usually i think like most people think of how a business works right Mm -hmm. so you have basically you know you have the ceo the ceo instructs some people to to get a job done everyone's kind of aware or like your manager is vaguely aware of what you're doing you know um Whereas, to me, the behavior of certainly of kind of political parties, certainly of kind of left wing politicians, but also to some degree, you know, th- these kind of like Twitter file uh, revelations show a much more like reactive way way of thinking right mm-hmm. so so there's mm-hmm. like two models that i w- want to compare here one one model is like the, the best example of this is kind of like the stuff people say about the world economic economic forum right is is that you know like it's this one guy who's running everything and getting mm-hmm. all of these leaders to come together right. and and plan where it's much more i i think that like this is this is proven now like this is this is the stuff that uh vivek uh, Vivek Ramaswamy was talking mm-hmm. about uh, of how he just got like a cold email from them saying like oh you should come to this event and we'll put you on on, on the newsletter and and they put him on the newsletter anyway because he's right. even though he said no um right right it, it seems like yeah it seems like the man walking in front of the parade you know it seems like there are many people who want to do the same same thing you know like yeah. many, many people who want to Uh, do something to stop Trump. You know, this is a very common phrase, right? You know, something Mm -hmm. must be done, Mm -hmm. you know, but I'm very skeptical that all of the people who are doing something are actually kind of collaborating in in a kind of, you know, in a kind of hierarchy as opposed to, you know, basically just like flailing, (laughs) doing what they can. If they have some kind of power, then they're going to use it. That to me is much more, you know that that to me is much more um, yeah. related, or or it fits the data much better to me.
0: Well, I mean, but it's undeniable. We know this. There have been um, very concerted attempts to coordinate, control, social control. Um, I mean, Operation Mockingbird. We know this. The CIA. Very famous operation, which is, we don't even know, it probably still is going, but we certainly knew that it was going as of the 1980s, um, was them dictating to every newspaper in the country what they should say about war and US troops in places and what the State Department's doing, foreign policy in particular. I mean, and that's why if you look at the New York Times and the Washington Post over the last hundred years, They always say the same thing about foreign policy and they have all supported every war and they've all said what the CIA has told them to. Um, So that is absolutely a coordinated effort. There's no question about it. At the same time, the CIA, you're right, you're really right, is not made up of geniuses, right? What the CIA was doing in the early 1960s was trying to figure out ways to blow up Fidel Castro's cigar. I mean... And the stuff they were doing just with the Castro alone is just the craziest shit you can imagine. They were experimenting with LSD. They were giving LSD to subjects, MK ultra That's that operation, right? For what purpose exactly? You know, they thought that that was going to solve sort of the, the key to psychological warfare and they were going to distribute LSD to the enemy's populations to sort of subvert the political power in those countries. I mean, yeah. Now, why is this? I mean so we have very centralized coordinated efforts to control people's minds basically but they've done it you're right in hamfisted ways that's a great word i think for it why is that why have the political not just the cia but the political elites generally look at the steel dossier you've ever read the actual steel dossier it's hilarious i mean i when right, i first read right. it yeah. <laughs> I, I couldn't believe it i mean i thought it was a joke i thought it reads like it was written by an eighth grader it is that dumb um the, so why is this? Well, number one, um, if you're going to choose a career in politics, you're going to make a lot less money than if you choose a career in business, if you're talented. If you're extremely talented in these things, you're going to take a massive cut in pay if you choose to be a congressman over being a C- CEO or many things within business, you know, it just doesn't pay as well, nearly as well. So the smartest people, generally speaking, don't go into politics, right? And if you're really smart, you, re- yeah. you either go into business or you become a professor. Um, you, don't become, you don't become a politician. That's number one. So you don't get the best people in politics. You don't get the cream of the crop in politics, the most talented people. You don't. And number two is what kind of person would devote their life to politics in that way, to governing, these are true believers. Either they're megalomaniacal in that they believe that they should rule the world, and that's true for many of them, and or, as I said earlier, they believe in the American religion of empire, that America should rule the world. And we are the heroes of history. We are the exceptional nation that must and should dictate how other people live in the world. So that's a fanatical personality. That's not a person who's necessarily competent. (laughs) Um, So you're getting people who are paid. Yeah, I think we have. They're paid less and they're religious fanatics, essentially.
1: Yeah, I think we have very similar ways of thinking about this. I I guess if you have, you know, if you have unskilled enough coordination, it's kind of the same thing as uncoordination. Yeah. yeah. Then, then maybe. Yeah, maybe we don't disagree too much about this. And not to mention the I, way, I think... and
0: not and not to mention the way they've run the really important stuff, like wars. Right? Look how stupid, American. Just from their own from their own perspective, not immoral. I mean, just dumb and self destructive. Look how bad, how dumb the wars have been for the last fifty years. I mean, yeah.
1: have you uh, looked at the? There's this wonderful Jacob Siegel uh, piece. He's coming up a lot, I guess, um, called "Data-Driven Defeat," where he talks about his time in, uh, I think, Afghanistan, um, where he he looks at the the novel techno the new technologies that we have now. Uh, stuff in his in his article, he was specifically talking about Palantir. But I think he was making it very clear that that wasn't, you know, it, it's not something that's particularly wrong about that company, but that this kind of uh, systematic metrics-based approach to um, what is, you know, political philosophy, right? How to rule, what is it, What is a just war?
0: <laughs> it's Asperger's. Uh,
1: what you should be trying to accomplish. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. It's Asperger's exactly, politics. You know, it's Asperger's politics. Exactly gone right. too far, you know? Yep. Uh, and how it led to you know it it led to just a an enormous amount of lack of clarity Mm -hmm. in terms of what the instructions actually Mm -hmm. were in terms of what Mm -hmm. justification for what they were doing Mm -hmm. actually was that seems really um and to me like i I read that you know i've never you know i've never had any kind of um, experience with the military, but I see that, you know, I, I see that in politics. I see that even in, in many software companies, you know, in many cases where data is something that reduces how clearly you see the world instead of increasing it.
0: Yeah. That's fascinating. Wow. I love that. What a thesis right yeah. there. Data, data can actually, what do you say? Cloud the way you see the world. Um, yes. Yeah. Fantastic, I agree. I mean, I'd wanna like flesh that out a bit, but I guess I would say that data in itself does not do any harm. And in fact, I think it can only help clarify. It's that when it is used um, exclusively, when it is used in the absence of any other mode of analysis, um, then you're gonna get into major trouble. If, If your world is just numbers, just data, just sort of hard facts, there's no way on earth you could decide whether the Vietnamese people or the Iraqi people will greet your troops as liberators when they walk in. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a kind of
1: Peter principle here, right? Do do you know, like there's this idea of the Peter principle, I forget who it comes from. Uh, But, but the idea is that, you know, you'll, someone keeps getting promoted until they're no longer fit for their job. Right. So, Mm -hmm. so, you know, like, so so you have a, someone at the company, And he does a good job and he gets promoted and then he does a good job again and he keeps getting promoted and then he gets promoted into a level where he's no longer fit. And he actually, you know, maybe starts being detrimental to the company at that point. Mm -hmm. To me, you get the same deal with technology. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I see this very often of people just trying to use more complicated approaches than is necessary to solve, you know, very straightforward technical problems. You know, or like not even that technical of a Mm -hmm. problem. Mm -hmm. And, It does seem like something, you know. It it is something that's difficult to reason about. It's something that is difficult to, uh, because, you know, there's definitely a way in which it goes too far, right? Like, like you can't say, you know, I'm I'm just going to pay attention to no data, (laughs) like that. That's that, that I think definitely goes too far. Sure, but there is this phenomenon. Or there, there is this effect that happens time and time again. I think, yeah, foreign policy is an excellent example of this that everyone can understand. You know, people looking at it. If you look at you know like the the, the efficiency metrics, you know, uh, of of your trainings <laughs> yeah. and of your of, of your technologies and of your weapons, it can really cloud your mm-hmm. judgment in terms of you know you can spend so long talking about how <clears throat> how useful your your weapons are that you never even think about why you're using them.
0: Yeah. It's also true. Um, you know, I was thinking if you use a GPS exclusively, when you drive around, you'll never be able to find your way around anywhere on your own. So it creates incompetence for one thing, but it also, it clouds or it occludes, I guess is the word, um, all these other things that make people tick, you know, many of many right. of which so, are so many of which are inexplicable yeah, so, so the
1: point that i want to really draw out here is that yeah I, i've had this comes from uh john asconis mostly he's been on this show before but he he really is uh he, he really references McLuhan a lot and he says you know Mc, McLuhan of course is famous for saying the medium is the message mm-hmm. talking about at his time television about how mm-hmm. you know just the presence of television changed what ideas were communicated about changed who would win elections and, you know, changed how our government works, what laws are in place over us. And I think that, you know, John would definitely say that this is true in the private context as well, right? That, that in the private context, what technologies are acting as a conduit for your ideas, what you're actually talking through and what you're talking about um, and, and what you're using in your everyday life, that that is something that has long lasting effects on on what decisions actually get made
0: yeah
1: right so 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 you end up with a situation where 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 the thing that's Okay, I need to slow down. So, so you end up in the situation. So so let's take the Afghanistan example, right? Mm-hmm. You have, uh, mm-hmm. let's say you have you know minimal data. You, you can still you know count how many troops died. Let's let's say this is like World War One decision making. You can still count how many troops mm-hmm. died. Yeah, yeah. You can make various estimates of mm-hmm. your uh, mm-hmm. adversary's military strength, mm-hmm. but you know it, it's not the kind of systematic metrics based warfare that we have <laughs> now. Uh, what does what do, what does Winston Churchill do to decide? You know to to decide. Uh, his military strategy. Well, he looks at you know he, he looks at his people being bombed. He 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 looks at you know the the occupation of France, and he makes this you know fundamentally um, political decision. Right? He he makes a, a decision based on his judgment for the good of the people. Yep. And you you look at the American context now. You look at you know you look at uh, Afghanistan. You look at Iraq. You look at this metrics driven. Uh, Warfare, you're, you're beginning to zoom in, right? And, and of course, it's very, you know, you—it's not quite right to compare World War, World War, uh, World War Two to uh, to Iraq, but, but it, you know what the idea it, I'm trying to get to? Well, right? I think, you,
0: so. Let me—I want to say this. Let me. Um, it sounds like—are you familiar with Hayek's knowledge problem? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's to me what you're doing here is ultimately what you're doing is making an argument for anarchism. You're making an argument against governance generally. Um, what What you're describing is the attempts that have been made by governors to engineer societies. Social engineering is what the progressives used to call their mission. That's what they said they were doing. And that's what they did. I mean, they hired engineers, actual engineers, to be city managers, basically the mayors, to run the cities. Um, and some right, of that this
1: is the Chinese style of governance. But yeah, yeah. And so, like, much, yeah.
0: So when it comes to like laying subway tracks, they're awesome, great. That's who you want, you know. Um, but for everything else, not so much. And I was thinking, it's not just foreign policy; it's really everything. Think about the history of race and what the state has done in terms of race over the last hundred years in this country. Right? It's been an attempt to engineer an integration engineer it. So in 1970, I was put on a school bus. Kamala Harris was here too. She was put on the same school buses in Berkeley, um, to go all the way across town to another school to achieve perfect racial integration in the schools, which is what they did. Berkeley's public schools in the 1970s were famous for this. Um, they were exactly, each school was exactly the same, uh, distribution of, of racial groups. It was the same percentage in each school. They did it. By bussing children, by bussing children every day, like little pieces in a factory, we would get moved across town to achieve this thing that to them was the ultimate goal of all, was to achieve perfect racial equality. Um, That's engineering, that's social engineering. Now, turns out, like some people in Berkeley thought it was great, still think it's great. Kamala Harris talks about it all the time, how she's so proud that she was one of the she was one of the first children to be busted in this country for racial integration. But in Boston there were riots in the streets and oh and parents threw rocks and bricks at the school buses when they came into their te- which of course all everyone says about that now is that oh these were racists. These were racists who hated black people coming into their schools. That may have been true. But at the same time it doesn't matter because it blew up in their social engineers faces. And the people of Boston refused To be engineered. And so they stopped busing Mm. eventually by the 1980s. By the 1980s, they just stopped even trying busing. So, yeah, I mean, that's if you're an engineer, you say, you say, you look at the scene, you're like, okay, X percent of black kids are at this school over here, and Y percent of white kids are over there. So to make it all equal, we got to bring this number of black kids to this school, and they'd be right. They would be right. In Berkeley, they got it right. You see Berkeley's here. We have all kinds of engineers. They worked in the city government. They said they did this. They studied the schools. They went around and counted the colors of all the children in the classrooms. And they reported the data, the numbers. And they said, to achieve perfect racial equality, we need to have this number of kids from each group in each school. And we got to bust them to do that. So they got it. They achieved it. It was perfectly racial equality. As close as they could. And so, but the thing is, I still resent it, and this is one of the reasons that I I hate liberalism, is that they experimented on me with a social engineering project, and the people of Boston and other cities too where this happened are with me, and we will never abide by their rules ever again just for that one reason alone. But then they've tried to engineer societies all over the world. That's what Vietnam was about. That's what Iraq was about. That's what everything has been about. That's what Afghanistan is about engineering right, human beings, building, yeah. engineering human beings and societies, it can't work. It can't work. You will at at least face tremendous opposition, it turns out, resistance, and even hatred. Hatred. Some people love it. Some people love being engineered by elites. They do. <laughs> yeah. No, they live in New York City and San Francisco, hmm. but the rest of the country, for okay, the most part, fair. doesn't like it. They resent the fuck out of it, and that's what MAGA is all about, really. I think is people resisting being engineered by elites. Um, right. It's, so, it, so I think yeah.
1: about this, and yeah, this feels like a conversation that I, I've listened to before. Where, so, so, so here's the here's the Gordian knot, right? in a way that the kind of the the social engineers won, right? Like the, the, Mm that they like the busing, the busing style, you know, vision of, of forced equality won. like that is, you know, that that's, you know, university policy until very, until very recently. And I'm sure they're doing it Mm -hmm. in secret now, right. You know, of of racial admissions, it's, you know, civil rights law, Mm -hmm. it influences every single workplace, Uh, or every single workplace above, I think like 25 employees or something like that. Right. So, so, so they sort (laughs) of won, uh, like that's the thing that I'm, I'm kind of confused here about when I I hear conservatives listen, or I I listen to conservatives make this argument where they say like, you can't socially engineer people, but they, they did, right? Like they, they 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 won.
0: No, no, I don't think any, I don't think anybody's won. I think it's an ongoing war. And Mm -hmm. my side just won a major battle, not the war. But yes, they're going to continue to do affirmative action by other means. But, you know, at the very least, they've been publicly, nationally shamed about their attempts to do it, at the very least. And there are certain means that are now barred from them. They can't do it. So they have to do it in very increasingly sneaky, underhanded ways. That are going to look ever more ridiculous to people. And I do think that ultimately it will fade away. There will always be probably institutions in this country that are just, I come from Antioch College, which is one of these colleges that will, Mm. I trust, trust me, will never um, stop trying to integrate the hell out of their student body. They will never stop trying to get every black face they can onto campus. But I think the mainstream, the mainstream will absolutely shift away from it. And there will be new modes of education, most importantly, where a lot of like black kids from the hood can actually get educated, meaning the internet, meaning unregistered academy. It's like the school I have. There's all sorts of schools online now where you can get a better education than you can at Harvard, like clearly a better, I mean, and I mean Harvard, you can get clearly a better education online, uh, both in free spaces like YouTube and in these new schools that are popping up all over the place. You combine that, you're going to be way better educated. So, like, it will be less of a concern to get all the black kids into Harvard um, or to college, right? They don't need to go, no one needs to go to college anymore. There's no reason except for the credential, um, which is even fading as well. There's more and more industries, like, and led by tech, thank God, like in Silicon Valley, as I understand it, they care very little about where your BA is, BS is from, um, but, um, or that you even have a BS. You know, I've heard this many times about tech, you know, which is like, that's a leading industry. Yeah, it's
1: very much... Because because the verification costs are low, right? Great. You, you can actually test... You can test out, you know, how good that's is awesome. someone at writing software. It's,
0: that's you know, awesome. Well... You know,
1: sit, sit down in front of me and write some software.
0: Right. Um, and, guess which, and guess which industry is the trendsetter for things like this, right? It's tech, you know? So, I mean, yeah. th- I think it's going to fade. Um, and I think that... Right. In
1: many ways, I'm optimistic about this, I should say. I, I think oh, the yeah. first half of this episode... We've been very pessimistic. I, I, I do think it. Yeah, I, I do think you know we should take these problems seriously, but we just look at. I, I think you know, biology. Ba- Srinivasan, I don't know if you know him. Sure. But he, he has this idea of peak centralization
0: was <laughs> the sixties, right? We had was, technology that he was, was ever centralizing. Wrong about something was that a few a few months ago? Oh. He, pre- he predicted what well, was that? Oh, not? the
1: the the. Uh, Hyperinflation, yeah, I don't know. I, yeah. I think that you look <laughs> at it at a kind of you know
0: macro level. You
1: look at it almost in a kind of EA way, right? Where, where if there's like a five percent of the economy crashing, and there's you know something you can do to do 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 to tell the world about it, yeah. uh, th- gotcha. then you do it, yeah. uh, even if you think that you know ninety yeah. five percent of the yeah. Sorry,
0: what was it? So what's his? That, new- that's
1: my reading of it, but you know.
0: Yeah. Okay. Sorry. It, sorry to do that. But what, what, so what uh, was so, he
1: Right, right. So, so he has this idea that peak centralization was like the 60s, that, that you had the invention of ever more centralizing technologies, stuff mm. like cable TV uh, is the biggest mm. one. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm. Even like the early computer, like the pre-internet computer was very mm. much a centralizing technology. DARPA. And then slowly you get, you know, and, and certainly industrial systems, right? Uh, and, and then slowly you get a decentralizing technology. Uh, technology you get first social media yep. which you know still still ended up you know like you still ended up on social media sites but mm-hmm. you know whatever you think is bad about the social media sites maybe is not so bad or compared to okay. you know compared to the pre um pre media, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and pre social media pre internet video and or like television and uh radio uh mm-hmm. networks Mm -hmm. And then you get, you know, even more so with uh, AI. I think this is one of the big things that people's predictions were wrong about, notably Teal. Uh, I have an article about this, about, yeah, the the way that especially language models work is very encouraging of basically pluralism because there's a small chance, you know, Mm -hmm. there's a small chance that it says the emperor has no clothes. There's a small Mm -hmm. chance that it can generate you know just both both like just just wrong things right but also things that are you know are very politically inconvenient it's um it's a, it's a highly dynamic system that that's why it's so interesting and you and i should say you know that's also why it's so valuable that's also why it can be used in so many ways but you you end up with these increasing numbers of technologies that i think favor yeah the, the, I think there there's a kind of like renaissance of Hayek that, that that's about to happen mm. where where a lot of people who you know i who, I have many friends who would not consider themselves you know libertarians who would consider themselves um opposed to the kind of you know libertarianism as it's been historically practiced, let's say, uh-huh. but look at what but who read Hayek who read what he's saying about uh the information problem who read what what he's saying about you know, increasing reliance on centralized governments. And it says, you know, even though, like like you said at the beginning, even though uh, they might be a traditional Catholic, even though they might have very different social views, even though they might favor a kind of uh, local redistribution, a kind of local egalitarianism, they see the problems with overreaching. And I think especially important is this kind of like, the the problems with overconfidence, uh, uh measurement uh, measurements, right the of the autists going too far mm-hmm. where yeah, where there's a real I, the thing is I don't know what's next, right I, I don't know what happens after you know the tradcasts are reading Hayek i I don't know what happens <laughs> after that, but there's a kind of fascination oh. there oh.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I don't well, know they, how
1: the story ends. We're well, they in the are. middle of it.
0: They are reading Hayek, or they already have read. Yeah, Hayek. yeah. All the trad cats I know are basically ex-libertarians, um, or are at least adjacent to libertarianism and know all about it. You know, I mean, I, I, I right. That,
1: that's the that's the great thing about uh about the internet especially about like twitter twitter is kind sure. of the an- anti-academia right academia sure. is where you know macro and micro economists will never talk sure. to each other <laughs> um, or, or at least not as much as they it's should. actually the um, it's uh, the
0: perfection of academia it's what right it's right what it, academia like, should be yeah with, with yeah. all with all the mess in it too with all the with all the nuts and the stupid people and the yelling and the all the shit because that's life Cause that's cause that's, cause that's, <laughs> yeah. that's life we now have a window onto everybody you know um, which you don't get in academia. Mm. You only study the particular people we're interested in, you know, like the leaders of the civil rights movement will have 5,000 books about them, but other subjects will be uncovered, you know, like the history of the Federal Reserve, for instance, you know, they won't talk about that. But um, so, I mean, I didn't even know, I had no idea, I have a PhD in American history from Columbia University, right? And I taught um, for years, 25 years. I didn't know anything about the Federal Reserve until I started reading Libertarians when I was in my 40s. Like, that's insane. That's ridiculous. They don't even... And I'm not saying they have to have a particular position on it, but we didn't talk about it at all. Like, it was unimportant. Like, what? But boy, I could tell you the top 25 leaders of every civil rights organization in the South in the 1960s. I mean, I know their names. I know their biographies. I know their personal histories. I know their sex lives. I know everything. Goodness. Oh, my. I mean, yeah, yeah so... um so uh, yeah, the internet is, right. is, is higher education. <laughs> That's what it is. It is. It is a higher form of education than academia. Um, well, fascinating. No and doubt about say, it. You
1: know, the medium is a message. Yeah. No doubt
0: about it. I mean, Joe, Joe Rogan's a great, he's to me, Rogan is like an exemplar of what the internet produces in terms of intellectuals, right? He's what, I think he's like the sort of a, yeah, he's a great example of an internet intellectual. Someone who never went to college, didn't wasn't political at all, wasn't intellectual at all until he was well into his 30s, maybe even 40s, and he starts this even the podcast his podcast wasn't intellectual at all until, you know, after several years. He was just getting high and talking about tits for years. But then he suddenly got interested in intellectualism like well into his 40s and he used this as a means to educate himself. And as a spur to educate himself, and you know, <laughs> believe me, I I have major reserve major issues with some of Joe's thinking, but you know, pretty impressive, right? I mean, I think as so- for someone who doesn't come from any kind of intellectual background at all, to know what he knows and to be able to articulate arguments the way that he does, all of which is learned from just the internet, um, shows me that. The Internet's doing a way better job of educating our youth (laughs) than Harvard. So, yeah. And it also, I mean, it produces a bunch of idiots, too, for sure. But that's what we had before. I mean, they've always been around. It's just that we didn't know about them until the Internet. We didn't know how stupid people were until the Internet, until everyone had access to the public forums. And you can see, just right, how right. Dumb in, in many are.
1: ways, the internet is a kind of you know people worry about echo chambers. In, in many cases, they, yeah. they're only worrying about it because they're seeing yeah. echo chambers other than their like, own. <laughs>
0: having been on t- having been on Twitter now for fifteen years, I guess. I mean, I I know for sure that more than half of this country, I will never, ever, ever, ever be able to convince of anything. Like they won't ever care about anything I care about. I mean, and they won't understand it if I try to explain it to them. They're just not there. They're never going to be. They are watching Netflix and they are not going to talk about ideas. And that's all there. And it's probably more oh, like
1: that's what you mean.
0: Yeah, it's probably more I like, like, like three quarters, maybe maybe 80 percent of Americans are like that. And that's a fascinating speaking of Curtis Yarvin. Right. That that's very much a big piece of circumstantial evidence in his argument for monarchism. Um, And more importantly, Burnham's argument, which Curtis uses, um, that that what the masses do and think is irrelevant in who rules, that there's an elite that is self-perpetuating because the masses don't give a shit. I mean, I think that's right. I think certainly in the United States, that's right. And that's become, that's one thing I have become more and more clear on in the last 20 years with the internet than I was before. I used to have sort of democratic Hopes for people in America. I always kind of thought that, oh, everybody can be just as smart and competent as everybody else. And democracy is going to be awesome when everybody learns about it and decides to be democratic. And we're going to have, you know, all the poor people in Appalachia are going to be senators and congresspeople and presidents. And it's going to be awesome. No, I mean, the, not only can the vast majority of people in this country uh, not perform the duties required for governance, <laughs> but they don't want to and they never will. And that's the best thing about them is that they are indifferent. This is this is libertarian fodder, anarchist fodder. This is who you want in your country. You love these people who want no, have no interest in governing. Now, if you govern them in ways that they don't like, then they get very interested in politics and make a lot of trouble for you as a governing elite. But you know, I mean, 70 to 80% of the people in this country are interested in NASCAR and the NFL and the latest uh, dance reality love show on TV and Bachelorette. And like, that's what they're really it. And they're never going to be interested in politics in any way, shape, or form. And if you've ever spent time in just among ordinary Americans who don't live in big cities, you know this. You know this, that they have zero interest and will never have any interest in it. And so that means, so Curtis is right, like the governing elite has no reason to be concerned about them. They will continue doing what they want to do because no one knows where Ukraine is on a map or even what it is, much less why 2014 is the origin of the war and the history of the Donbass. And like, no, they're not. They don't even know Ukraine exists. They don't know it exists, and they won't care if you explain to them why it matters. They still won't care. If you say to, if you explain to them in a beautifully constructed argument that supporting the Ukraine military will lead to World War III and kill everybody, if you spend an hour, you know, have the most brilliant theoretician laying this argument out to most Americans, they still won't care. They yeah, still they're won't they're care. They're not listening
1: to the Mearsheimer lectures. No, you know? um, <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there's a version of this argument, right, that that defends elites, right? You mentioned the Federal Reserve. Um, Garrett Jones would say that at the very least, you know, it's better to have a kind of elite Federal Reserve than to have, you know, like a democratically controlled one. Now, you might say, you know, like the, the, the better alternative is to have none at all. But, uh, you know, go back to the gold standard. Mm-hmm. But like, I think that, you know, some some institutions have to, you know, as, as Curtis points out, there will be an elite. And you know the, the question is right, especially very relevant in in the context of Trump and the context of kind of mm-hmm. American populism, or kind That's of, right. Uh, populism in general. Is that like <clears throat> is is the current you know is the current elite actually like worse than the alternative? Like what <laughs> mm-hmm. what what do you think would happen mm-hmm. yeah. if uh, you know let's say let's say Trump got into power again? He of course has his own staff. He has. He, within the Republican party is its own interests. Do you really think the alternative is that much better?
0: Um, right. No, I mean, one thing I haven't mentioned is that I am part of my thinking is um, that I am a Burnhamite and a Yarvanite on this question, on this question, which is right. why I've, and I've, my version of it, which I've articulated for years and years and years is uh, perpetual op- oppositionalism. I even have a name for it. <laughs> which is it's what i it's what i advocate. It's different than Cur- Curtis's prescription is really different than mine. Um, he's right. much he, more he wants uh, monarchy. He wants, wants, you know, well, no, a no, single I, ruler. I know I'm talking about the people. Yeah. Like what he's what he's advocating for the people is accommodation. Right? He says mm. just <clears throat> and compliance. Compliance I think is the word he uses. Comply with them. Don't, you know, if they try to do something just go along with it. Um he's laid this out very clearly. Mine is don't, I mean, I, I don't advocate rebellion unless it's absolutely necessary because you just get squashed by the state generally, or if you know you can get away with it. If you know you can get away with it, sure, go for it. But my thing is um, perpe- perpetual oppositionalism is about psychology, it's about one's psychological orientation to the state. And it is about the degree to which one has merged one's identity with the state or the ruling elite, whatever it is. I I consider like corporations part of the state now, so I'm including them, major corporations. Um, So a lot of people wear the red, white, and blue, and they talk about being American, and they cry when um, Americans win gold medals at the Olympics, and they support every war, and they support our troops, and they love America, and they love 4th of July, and they send their son to fight in the Iraq War. Right? These people have merged their identities with the United States of America um, to the point, to the extent that th- they're actually sending their son to die for it. I mean, that's <laughs> now what you get from that in this case is a lost war and a dead son. So it doesn't work out often when people merge their identities with a nation state. Ask Germans in the 1940s, you know, if how well that worked out for them. Um, some of them didn't merge their uh, identity with a nation state. They were put in concentration camps or murdered,
1: right. But the ones so. who did,
0: but the ones who did were blown into vapor by allied bombers, you know, um, or put on trial and hanged by their necks or just shot in the throat by, a, you know, I mean, they were annihilated um, right. so um yeah,
1: right. so so the question <laughs> is, you know what? What is the best? What is the best thing to do now? Right. So, let's say let's say you're American. You're yeah. skeptical of of the kind of ruling elite. You so what? What are you doing? Do not
0: do not merge your identity with them. Do not. Um. They are not your family. I mean, my parents refer to every Democratic politician by their first name. Right. It's as if they're fr- even though they don't know any of them, never met any of them. It's this thing. It's the merger of one's identity with these people who rule over you. No, let, I'm, I'm with Curtis in terms of strategy. Sure. I mean, I think strategically it's best not to fight them in general, in general, and let them rule. Let them rule. So I'm with Curtis on that. Let the elites rule. Absolutely. Because I don't want to rule. I don't want to govern. I don't want to decide how many dog catchers we have and when garbage pickup is and who to put in prison and who to kill. I don't want to decide all that. I certainly don't want to do it myself. I want other people to do that. Thank you very much. I want to live a life. Thanks. I'm not interested in ruling other people. Um. So let them do it. Let them do it. But don't ever once think, oh, those are my people. They have my interest at heart. Oh, you know, I trust them. They're basically good. They might make mistakes. You know, this is the way that liberals are thinking about Joe Biden these days, right? Is that he's he makes a lot of mistakes, but he's a he's good guy. He's our guy. He's, he's a good guy. He's family, you know? Uh, Don't do that, because what will happen is they will send your sons to war. I mean, literally, that is what happened, has happened, when people have merged their identities with the nation state. Not just the United States, of course, every country on earth this has happened, where mothers have willingly, even enthusiastically, handed over their sons to fight, to kill and die in a war they know nothing about, except what the elites have told them because they're part of the national family. that's It's just a bad thing. Not just killing your sons, but all sorts of laws and policies that you may not like, they will foist upon you without even second thought because they know you will accept it. Like the way the Democrats have thought about African Americans until recently, right? No matter what we do to these black people, they will vote for us. So it doesn't matter. And this is consequently, look what the African Americans have gotten from the Democratic Party, Right. They've they've been made vassals of the st- wards of the state because they right. they're considered because they've merged their identities fully with the Democratic Party when they run the con- when they run the government they're wards of the state they grow up in a public the working class African Americans by and large grow up they wake up in a public housing apartment that's the state they go to a public school that's the state they interact with the cops probably every day that's the state their mothers on welfare that's the state. There's a social work worker in the public housing apartment with their mother, talking about which groceries to buy and which men she's had sex with. That's the state. They're 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 incarcerated from birth.
1: Right. So, so like the big, I don't know. The thing that I I keep circling around is that actually okay. So, so I want to give one, one kind of like related related idea there, which is like the idea of the swing voter, right? The, 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 the people who have uh, their, their specific appeal to are people in basically highly contested states, you know, the Midwest, um, some parts of the South, Georgia, you know, Arizona, um, basically the place where uh, it's up for grabs, right? And, and the people there, you know, the, the people there who are being uh, appealed to are, are are people who have not chosen, who, who have not yet chosen a kind of political loyalty, Right. You see this with demographics a lot as well, right? People talk about um, people talk about working in the white working class, for example, uh, as you know a, a group that has shifted from uh, the Democrats to the Republicans. It, it is in uh, it, it does seem like that in a democracy it is the, the kind of political borders that are that are the most advantageous. So, so I think that that's in support of your idea. Uh, I mean I mean, Curtis would say, that you know you're you're only you're only basically enraging them more right you're enraging the sure. ruling class more sure. you know trump trump might be a good example of this you're yeah. you know you're you're um, poking the dog a good
0: analogy for me in my <clears throat> perpetual oppositionalism it's not it's not perpetual rebellion that's very different you're just okay you're opposed to again the merger of the identity maybe there's a better word out there um so my attitude what i'm what i'm actually Promoting here is the attitudes, by and large, of American slaves. Uh, American slaves were known. One of the things there that differentiates them from, um, especially Africans, African slaves in the in the in the Western Hemisphere, is that they didn't rebel very much at all. There are very few open, armed, violent rebellions by American slaves. I mean, a handful, a handful. I mean, I'm talking about maybe a couple hundred slaves ever participated in one. It's that little. Um, and what we find in slave culture, in American slave culture, is, you know, they would work only so much as they were forced to work by the whip. We have all sorts of accounts of whenever the overseer turned his back, the slaves would drop their hoe and stop working. And they would only work when they were being watched or being threatened with punishment. Um, shirking off everything, you know, only so much that they wouldn't get punished. So basically they were maximizing their, they were always maximizing their quality of life actually, right? That was the calculation. I don't want to work hard in the field for nothing. So there's not, they're not going to get anything from that. Their quality of life will not increase by them working hard in the field for the master. But they also know their quality of life will decrease if they, if the master sees them not working. So they try to thread that needle there. They try to find that, that point the sweet spot where their quality of life is maximized where they don't work very much and they don't get beaten that was and that was the right. best so kind of pragmatism that was the best yeah. possible world for the slave at that point right and they figured that out so it wasn't so rising up you know getting the other slaves around and organizing you know getting their shovels and tools and trying to beat up the overseer and then grabbing the guns and going to kill the master that happened like twice <laughs> Once Nat Turner in Virginia is actually the only one I can think of where that really happened. Um, and that was like 20 slaves did that. So by and large, they just tried to avoid punishment and work at the same time. And when I say work, I don't mean just work. I mean, again, they the reason they would not work hard was that they had no, they had no yeah, stake the- in it. Yeah. They had no this was not their work. It wasn't. They weren't gaining anything. Their person. They weren't personally um, invested in it in any way, right? Um, yeah, that's what I'm saying. With politics, it should be our attitude.
1: To, to try right. do so it. You're not. You're not invested in the state, but you are. Um, yeah, you comply. So, so you do kind of comply with, it, right? yeah, you, comply with it. Yeah, but don't volunteer.
0: Yeah, comply, right? fine, but don't volunteer. That's what I mean. Sure. Don't volunteer to stay after work. Don't volunteer. To uh participate in governing, don't volunteer don't be a pol- don't be a politician, don't run for office, don't work for the state. Or if you do, don't do it with enthusiasm unless you actually agree with the state in that moment. But you know, just do it like the way the ladies the ladies in the DMV work. That's what I'm talking about. that's that's <laughs> that should be your attitude to your employer and to the state, both. I mean, you're an idiot if you merge your identity with your employer, right? Because the employer will be like, "Oh, great, Brian, can you work uh, Saturday and Sunday this week? We, we need it." The business will be like, "Oh well, of course, if we need it, then I'm there, boss, and you will cancel, right? you'll cancel right. your it's wedding. Very common. Theme. You'll cancel your wedding or your son's birthday to, to work all because that's what matters. That's you, that's the identity, that's your family. Um, same with the state. Why would you ever volunteer, like sending your son, you know, volunteering for the army is just the most obvious example? Um, but there's all sorts of ways in which Americans do or do not volunteer their energy, their time, their resources, their, their emotional capital into the state. They do also just waving the flag is that, um, that's a very small thing, but it is a thing. It's you're working to put up that flag, um, sacrificing. So,
1: So I think a lot of what people in, in our circles are trying to do is establish uh, an alternative, yeah, right. They they want to create a different yeah. identity. Uh, do do you think that that's that that would be a positive, or do you think that you know it should just be individual? Yeah, I was going. You, you shouldn't be kind of yeah affiliating I'm an, with anything like that.
0: I'm an egoist for sure. So yeah, I um, I think that, I think
1: that uh, for the audience, what does that mean?
0: The best al- yeah. So let me. So the best alternative is to have no identity. Um, meaning other than Brian and Thad. Uh, no social identity. Yeah, individualism. I mean, it's a form of individualism. It's an, it's a radical individual. I think it's the most radical individualism. It's Sterner. Mock um, Sterner is the guy right. who I like a lot. And he kind of laid this out. It's not anything your audience hasn't heard. It's just the most radical version of it. It's, um, it's radical individualism in which the ego, the self, the individual is sovereign. I think that's the word he uses. I think Sterner uses sovereign for the individual. Um, and that's the ethics. <laughs> that's the extent of the ethics. It's like the, the, so, the individual is sovereign, period. That's it now. So if you, if you try to tell a sovereign what to do, that's not cool. Right? If you certainly if you try to govern another sovereign, that's not cool. <laughs> you know that you can go to war over that, right? So if you if you establish the individual as the sovereign, the state is is thwarted, at least intellectually. It can't it can't encroach on you at all. So that's that's sterner's position, as I understand it. I like that a lot. Um, now the question is, what do you do if the state comes knocking on your door and tells you it wants you to do this, that and the other thing? Um, change your life in all sorts of ways, whatever. Do you do you not open the door? Curtis says, Curtis Jarvin says, open the door, let them in and do whatever they tell you. I mean, again, I, I'm with that to a point, but there has to be a line, and I've never heard Curtis delineate where it is that he would resist, if at all. I mean, up to his execution and the execute and the murder of his children. Would he like not resist if they yanked his kids out onto the street and held guns to their heads? You know, come on. And I mean, I think even before then there's got to be some line of resistance. I mean, are they, you gonna let them demolish your house? Are they gonna let, you right. gonna let them ensla- on that, you know, enslave the- you, put you in prison, send you to send you to Ukraine? I mean, what are you gonna resist again? Like, nothing? I mean, come on now. Yeah. So the point I, is I think though- it's
1: very important to to note that.
0: But the the main—it's hard to resist on your own. The main thing is the psychological identification with the state is what is to be avoided. Because if you again identify with them, then you will willingly do what they say. You will enthusiastically do what they say. This is the way that hardcore communists think and have thought, right? Right. They get excited. Like think about like Chinese communists in the heyday, like in the fifties and sixties, right? The hardcore. You know, they would love it when the state would come and tell them to demolish their house and they would do it. Um, so um, right, right.
1: very, very topically, very topically yeah. on, on Chinese communism. One goal of theirs was uh, the abolition of the four olds, right? The, the yep. traditions, the mm-hmm. customs. Sure. Uh, and that's because they viewed that kind of separate identity as, as a threat to them. I think yep. they, they viewed, I mean, I think this correctly. Yes. That, yes. Uh, that people want to have a kind of identity that they want yes. to have a group identity other than themselves. Yes. And, you know, I, I think that's for myself, you know, I, I don't think I would have uh, a very fun time if I had a kind of, uh, uh, if I had, you know, Max Stirner's philosophy, like, like I, I don't think <laughs> that I would be able to live like that. And, you know, that, that might be that, that might just be me, but I think many people are like, wait, it, why not? They want a group identity. Why not? Where they want some kind of shared it's a kind of like emotional it's a kind of emotional thing, you know? Like it feels good to be part of a group. It feels good to be part of, you know, uh,
0: preclude this doesn't preclude any group identity. You can have all kinds of group identities. You can have fierce group identities as an egoist. It's just not with the state who has power. It's just it's avoiding it's not it's about Having no group identity with people who have power over you, which includes employers, by the way, Um, private market, private sector employers too, fall under this. It's it's just stupid, right? Think about it. To merge your identity with your employer and do whatever he says um, for the good of the company. Are you crazy? You're just, it's a job. I mean, unless you're somehow literally invested in the company, that's a different matter. But if you're just an employee, it's just completely impractical and stupid to do that. Um, so no, you can be, you can still have a powerful Chinese identity if you want it. You can have a powerful libertarian identity. You can have a powerful Raiders fan identity. Um, right. Sure, but no, it's just about it's about being having familial feelings about those who govern you. That's it.
1: Okay, this is the this is fascinating. Here, it's a kind of pandora's box but i feel like i'm ready to open it okay uh so this kind of identification of this kind of familial identification um this is something that i that i see very prominently that but i'm not an expert in in any way i don't really um quite frankly i'm just not very knowledgeable about the theories but you have yeah you have very much a, a parental-like relationship with the state, right? This is something that forms, yes, uh, yes. very frequently. Except the, almost, you're the you know, child. Almost verbatim, but you're the child. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah. What is what is it about that relationship that makes it so powerful?
0: <clears throat> oh well, why is it why why is it so compelling for people? Why do people yeah, voluntarily? Yeah, well, why
1: is it such a strong you know tool of motivation? Why do people
0: want to enter that relationship? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, what is what would Freud say? I mean, you know, he he's all about object relations, which is about one's relations to one's parents. Uh, that that is kind of the template or the basis for one's personality, one's psychology. You know, the dynamics and the one the way that one relates to relationships of all kinds in one's life come from your parents, your relationships with your parents, right? That's it doesn't mean that it's like a direct one-to-one that every relationship you have is identical to the one you had with your parents, but that he says that you can see, you can see the roots um, of the relationships in your parents, that it's, it's cause it's causal in some way. Um, And so I would say that's where I would look first is in one's, not just their specific relationships with their parents but the way they think about their parents and the way they think about parents in general right if they if they consider the the figure of the mother and the figure of the father as sacred in some way uh they're going to have i think friendlier attitudes toward the state right if they believe in deferring to the authority of the parents they're going to be friendlier to the state i think in general i think that's probably true in general i don't know i could be wrong about that but it seems that way um
1: yeah, yeah I, I do think that's that, that's related to a kind of general personality factor right something like yeah. agreeableness. yeah so like yeah. on the right so, so, so i think that that's true
0: uh-huh.
1: at the same time i don't know like there's a common you know there's a common kind of uh, Christian conservative or maybe just like religious conservative uh, argument that, you know, you're going to be loyal to someone, right? You, you If you don't have, you know, they, they would say that, you know, just look at voting patterns. People who have a strong mm. religious faith are, are are pushing back against the kind of, um, you know, we, we can say that it's a type of religion as well, but are pushing back against social progressivism if they're, say, a Christian or if they're a Muslim or so on.
0: Mm hmm. Um, right. Yeah, no, it's a it's a bulwark against the state. These these ethnic identities often have been. And this is why in the United States. Um, same with all, all identities, actually, uh, in, a, in a sense that are not statist identities, you know, so, you know, like all the forms of nationalism, the ethnic nationalisms that came over here with the immigrants, they obliterated them. And not just the ethnic nationalism, but the ethnic particularities, you know, the ways in which people certainly thought about work and family and politics and, um, you know, drinking and dancing and all these things, right? During Prohibition, this was a huge thing. Who, who was the main opposition to Prohibition? Immigrants who brought with them particular cultures that embraced wine and whiskey. And they were like, what the fuck is this? And so they drank all they wanted against the law and basically subverted that law. And that's why we don't have prohibitions because of those ethnic immigrants, that ethnic culture, that particularist ethnic culture is what stopped that law from happening. So, um, yeah. And same with sexual cultures, the gay, gay liberation of the 1970s, which by the way, every, every libertarian, every, anybody who's interested in personal freedom at all, that should be the high, high watermark of personal liberty in this country. I think it was, um, That was not good for the state. They were not fond of it. They didn't mind at the time because the gays constituted no real political threat to them. Right. They didn't constitute a large portion of the population. No one listened to them. They weren't influential in the 1970s. So it was fine for them to go fucking in the streets and being naked everywhere and having crazy pride parades, you know, fine. But what happened was then um, AIDS happens and all of a sudden gays get scared about that lifestyle about being individualist in that way, which it was, by the way, that's what it was at its root, the gay liberation of the 1970s, the sexual freedom of it, that was liberation, personal liberation at the most profound level for so many people. AIDS comes along, they get terrified for obvious reasons, for good reasons of doing this kind of thing anymore. And the state comes along and some people within it, within the gay liberation movement say, you know what? Instead of, and this is a famous quote from Larry Kramer, instead of fucking in the bushes, why don't we get married and be Americans? So that's the gay marriage movement begins, which was a project of assimilation. Gay culture was right. this was this different oppositional outsider thing. It had nothing to do with op, you know American mainstream or political culture. And it was consciously so. I mean, it's very oppositional. If you look at like gay, gay liberation politics at the time, it's egoism, man. It's awesome. Every libertarian should go go read the uh, Gay Liberation Manifesto of the early nineteen seventies. It's online. You'll like a lot of it. Um, but um, so then they say, no, let's assimilate into American norms. We'll get some political power. We'll get civil rights. People will not be able to discriminate us against against us anymore, which actually was happening. You know, they can't deny us jobs anymore because we're gay, which was happening, really was happening. Homophobia was a real thing until the 1980s, 1990s um, in those ways. Um, and they did. And so they, what they did was they very consciously, all these gay organizations put forward this image of gays as ultra respectable, good American citizens who serve in the military, who are good parents, you know who are teachers and serve their community in all these ways, right? They volunteer for this and that. If you look at all these gay rights organizations of that time, the gay marriage organizations, they never once mentioned sex. They never once mentioned bars or nightclubs. They never once- Right, all well,
1: the pictures are of like Mitt Romney. Totally. Husband.
0: Right, exactly. Yeah. Right. Nothing like, against- yeah, Right, whereas if you look at like The uh, Advocate, which was not a, was not doing that, it was just a general gay magazine, they have all sorts of pictures of dudes in bikini, uh, like in Speedos, right? And like- you know the hottest celebrity this week? No, no. The political gays understood this. The gay marriage movement was all about assimilation of that oppositional culture into politics, and they won. They got it. They got it. They got marriage, and they got right. They got but civil I think rights. like the cycle yeah. turns, right? Like, yeah,
1: I, I I see this thing happening. Actually, uh, I I have a few friends who are kind of adjacent to this, but I see this happening with like polyamory now, right? Like it used to be like um a, a very kind of edgy and i mean i have more you know i have more traditional uh kind of sexual beliefs but i i do think like yeah there's a kind of edginess to it that that separates yourself from you know respectability politics and separates yourself from yeah uh kind of national identity Ish. and this has also been you know slowly co-opted
0: yeah yeah. Ish. Well, what happened was, I mean, it wasn't so much the polyamory movement came out of this stuff. It was the trans movement. So they, they win gay marriage. And then all of a sudden all these organizations that were extremely well funded with Hollywood money, even a lot of corporate money, you know, human rights campaign was like a rich organization. I've I've had many students who worked for them, you know, full salaries, very, they all of a sudden they won gay marriage all across the country. They had nothing to do. So they invented the trans movement issue um, as a as its new campaign. And look at what the trans movement is. Do the trans people talk about the glories of sex and pleasure? No. No, that's what gay liberation. Yeah,
1: like, like, was that ever was that ever yes. like an outsider thing, though?
0: That's what I'm saying. The gay liberation movement was all about that. This was the first political movement in human history that, that primarily celebrated individual human pleasure. Like that was their thing. That was the center of their politics, was sensual and sexual pleasure. Um, and advancing it against the repression of the civilization. This is what they said: the gay liberationists of the nineteen seventies, um, which became queer theorists, by the way. So that's the queer theory that I was a part of. Um, so um, yeah, and now it is. I mean, they're they're gone. They've been annihilated. That that strain within the gay freedom movement. Is gone. That oppositional culture is gone. And now, oh, the trans movement. So the trans movement comes out of it and it's desexualized. There's nothing sexual about it. The gay liberation movement was originally, it's totally, it's almost anti-sexual because I'm sorry to say Gavin McInnes had a point when he said that he was, he is, he finds them to be trans people to be grotesque, not immoral or bad people or that he wants to hurt them, but they're not nice to look at just from a, from a heterosexual person's point of view, they're not attractive conventionally, generally speaking. I mean, and some of them seem almost deliberately grotesque with the anime hair and all this stuff, you know? And it's, <laughs> but it's also that movement has always been characterized by rage, right? Gay liberation was not. Gay liberation was about dancing in the streets. Like that, I mean, that's literally what pride was, was dancing in the streets naked, like in the middle of a city, you know, like just sort of, Exploding with this, like these statements of individualism and egoism, is amazing. Trans movement is not that. In fact, it's not only is it. It's about rage, but it's also about being included in the family, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. It's very much a kind of (laughs) let us in. Very
0: much like Mean Girls
1: politics, you know. It's very much like literally, you know, maybe yeah, maybe
0: taken a little more literally than necessary. Let us in. Let Um, let me in. I want to be a part of you. I want to be a part of the American family, and and then it's this rage against the parent figures for not letting them in, right? It's what you would, it's the feeling you would have if your mom said that you can't live with her anymore. Or, you know, I mean, it's like, wait, what? Or like, you know, discriminated against (laughs) in some way. You would go, you would go crazy. You would go, and that's kind of the trans movement. They feel like they've been kicked out of the family or they want into the family or they're not being allowed in. And they have that kind of rage, the rage of a child who is scorned by his family. Um, But that's not Okay, that's fine, but that's not radical. That's actually radically conservative. That's about conforming. That's about wanting to be included, merging fully one's identity with the damn nation state. That's what it's about. Um they Maybe want that
1: should be the headline. The trans movement is radically conservative. It is. Yeah. yeah. I might I might actually <laughs> yeah. write that.
0: That's right. No, that's a good idea. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So that's what's happening. Anyway. That the doll is sort of dissolved proof of the thesis about um, alternative countercultures being, op, uh, being obstacles for the state to overcome. And what they do is they assimilate them. Um, right. And that's, I mean, immediately, like the Biden administration, the Democrats immediately assimilated the trans movement. There was no process by which the trans movement became respectable and then was allowed into the halls of power. No. It was the trans movement. But like immediately, the Democrats were, like, oh, cool, a new victim. Here's our thing. Here's our issue. This is we're going to push this, right? Gays. It took them 150 years to be, you know, accepted by the Democratic Party by politics. Um, the trans were made for made to order for this. Totally corrupt.
1: <laughs> more more literally than we. Uh, yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, that's right. That's right. Talk yeah, about social engineering. So- Talk yeah. about
0: social engineering. Right. Gosh
1: yeah it's <laughs> it's it's fascinating because you know i would no I, i'm just wrong here so so my my <laughs> instinct was like you know the 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 number of rebellious people that that has to be conserved right but the, but then i remember you know books like you know john toenig's igen uh this is like a study of uh, of generation z huh. uh, and it's just not, it's it's not conserved. There are just fewer rebellious. You know, that's one of yeah. the, that's one of the subtitles of her yeah. book, I think. Um, mm-hmm. Why why teens are less rebellious than uh, yep. th- than pre- previous generations or yep. something like that. Yeah, it's depressing. And
0: I can, I can tell you why. Right, why I, I know think why? about this. <laughs> it's because my generation, so I'm Gen X and my son is 20, he's 21 right. now. So this is who, it's our fault. It's my generation's fault. Mm. And I say our, I, when I say my generation, I mean middle class. I mean middle class and maybe right. upper middle class too. Uh not not poor people not working class not people who live like in small towns in Indiana. I mean, you know. Um that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, we overparented the shit out of our children. And even I did this and I, you know, and I was very aware of it and I didn't like it and I was opposed but even it was just like almost like an instinct for, on my part. I we had to know where he was at all times. We had to, you know, be involved in every aspect of his life. You know, we wanted him to tell us everything about his, I mean, you know, and like just constantly he was in our mind and we were always worried about optimizing his life and his safety and his happiness. And it's just like constant and it's in it. And I've seen this not just in my family, but I've seen this in like every family, every middle-class and upper-class family I've known um, of the of Gen X that's been led by Gen Xers. We've all done this. Helicopter parenting, we invented that. That's our thing. That's Gen X. And the theory is that it's because we came out of the first generation, which divorce was common. My parents divorced when I was five. Oh, hmm. Yeah, my parents divorced when I was five. Um, you know, The boomers, um, they were the first generation to get divorced. In a large in large numbers, and so we the theory is anyway that we those of us especially those of us from broken families so called broken families is that we've been wanting to recreate that family you know um, so desperately that we then you know go overboard when we have our own family, and I I do think that's right in some level, um, so that's what we've done though, we've basically squashed.
1: Sorry, I, I don't completely understand this. Oh, so like. So, so you're so the boomers the boomers are divorced, and then the Gen Xers, the Gen Xers come after. So they, they so so the idea is that they were raised by kind of divorced parents. Correct.
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: And then okay, and then they they want to they want to uh, have a more secure family Re- by they, not only they want to recreate
0: married, they want to recreate the family they had before the divorce. That's what they want. So they want to recreate that golden time in their, in the child's mind, right? In their mind as the child, the time before the divorce is golden and great. And you want to, you always deep down, you want to return to that is the theory anyway. And so, Mm. and then having children of your own is like the greatest opportunity to recreate or to create that perfect childhood you imagined before the divorce and before all your friends' parents were divorced. And before the 1970s drug culture and craziness was happening. And, you know, I mean, there was just there was a huge countercultural revolution at the time we were children in the 60s and 70s and 80s. There was just a lot going on that had never happened before. Gay liberation was a big part of that, right? Gay liberation was a very destabilizing thing for the American family. And a lot of the ideas of gay liberation got into the typical American family. And then gender started to change because of that ideas about gender. And oh, my gosh, it just became very destabilizing for the family. So, again, the theory goes that the helicopter parenting of my generation was actually basically a pro-family conservative reaction to the counterculture that we grew up around or grew up in. Um, and we over right. cor- we overcorrected and we overparented our children in an attempt to create this imagined perfect family of before the divorce time, does that make sense?
1: Hmm, yeah, yeah. This seems like I don't. I'll have to think about it more. I, I really am not sh- so sure about this, but that, that's actually oh, a very interesting explanation, and I and yeah. I surprisingly haven't heard it before. Really, I, I look into these questions. Yeah, I, I look into these questions a lot. I, I think you know the the mainstream. Uh, or, or not even mainstream, but even, you know, people who are more libertarian who, or who are more conservative, a lot of them point to phones, a lot of them point mm-hmm. to, uh, mm-hmm. uh, pe- I think like the social changes people do point to, John Twenge also points to this, the kind of moral panic around child kidnappings. Well,
0: that's that's uh, but, hel- yeah, but that's I, part I'm of not- helicopter parenting, is that, the Lenore Skenazy stuff about- right.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, definitely helicopter parenting. I mean, the theory, yeah. the, the theory that it was caused by uh, the divorces of the previous generation. Yeah that, yeah, that, yeah, that I've never heard before. Oh,
0: okay. Yeah. I don't know if Lenore has actually made that connection. I, I don't know. But I, I know that I've seen this. I don't think I'm the only person who has said this. But yeah, I mean, I certainly know in my life that is absolutely what's happened. You know, I might be projecting mm. o- too much onto other people. But the thing is, we do know for sure that my generation. Overparented way more than any previous generation. Yeah, that's for sure. Okay, so then the question is why? Why did? Why were we the ones who did that? Why did it happen then? Why was it us? And we do know that that is also the divorce rate is what marks us from previous generations as well. The divorce rate skyrocketed in the 1970s. Um, My parents got divorced in 1970. You know, Um, Mm. and so and it's not even if even if you weren't in a family of divorce. You were still in a culture in which divorce was becoming common. And as I said, all these, all these countercultural pressures on the family coming from gay liberation and feminism, right? Just were destabilizing the idea of family. It was becoming less and less solid and secure and something that was, it was no longer a bedrock of being an American. Um, I do think that just caused, caused a fear of instability among my generation. And, We've again overcorrected, and so we've you know we watch our kids all the time, and we take care of them all the time, and we do things for them all the time. And I'm telling you, man, everybody I know who's my age or Gen X and has kids has done this. Every single person I know, there's nobody I know really um, who I would call like uh, an irresponsible parent <laughs> in my class and my generation. No one and. So, and it's done tremendous damage, I think, done tremendous damage to the resilience and independence and general competence of our Zoomer kids. I think Zoomer kids can't tell the time, they can't find their way around a city without a GPS. They, you know, I mean, some they're socially awkward, they're not having sex anymore. This
1: right, is, right. A lot of sociologists call they, this like the slow life strategy. Yeah, they live at home. Everything happens later. They live at home for a yeah. very long
0: time. They're dependent on their parents for lots of things that when I was 18, I wouldn't have imagined asking my parents for or about. They over, they share personal details about their lives with their parents in ways that I wouldn't have imagined doing when I was a kid, when I was 18. You know, um, they're very, very different than we were growing up, but that's us. We raised them. It's our, Speaking generationally, and I, I think that's the way to explain it is you have to understand what happened with Gen X um, to understand Mm -hmm. what's happening with the children of Gen X, that's who the Zoomers are, that's our children.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, I see it, I see it everywhere. I see it, you're definitely right about the description. I'm I'm on the older side of Zoomers, maybe between Zoomers and millennials, Mm -hmm. but, or sorry, uh, yeah, between Zoomers and millennials. And And I see, you know.
0: In deference to authority, I think is a big part of that, right? Because they defer to their oh, parents. Yeah, absolutely, they defer absolutely. to their parents more than we did much more. They defer to us much more than there's much, much less adolescent rebellion among zoomers. It's kind of crazy. It's weird to me. I don't, I see almost none of it. And it's again, among middle-class and upper-class people, I think you see a shit ton of rebellion among zoomers, you know, in the lower classes for sure. But I mean, my, even
1: then I think it's declined. Maybe, you know, that yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I and there's a certain type of social anxiety that I think is very related to hmm. what you what we were talking about earlier with regards to uh, a state identity or a state endorsed identity, like like fitting in. this is something that I've always been confused by. You know, you know, like maybe maybe this is explained by my background. Like my parents were basically divorced, mm-hmm. um, so so maybe I had much more of a similar upbringing to you than to most zoomers but um what was
0: hmm.
1: i was just floored that when i like actually took seriously that people wanted to fit in this was something that like c- it was completely foreign to me like like you want to be seen as like the same as that other guy right why 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 would you ever want this
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> um, well this is something that you avoid punishment yeah you don't get punished right when you're the same right you get awarded you get rewarded if you're the same you get you get the prizes you know you get the you get the awards and the rewards if you're the same you win the competitions you're you're invited into the competitions if you're the same you don't even get to play if you're not the same um yeah now you have to want what your society has to offer, (laughs) right? That's the incentive. If you don't, if you're not, if you look at your civilization and you don't like what it has to offer, then, then you're probably going to be a weirdo individualist because there's no incentive for you to conform if you don't want to be a part of it. Right. And that, I think I just described you and me probably, and a lot of people who do the kinds of things that we do. Um, I looked around, I was like, I don't want to be run for office. I don't want to be a school teacher. I don't want to like run a media corporation. I don't want to do any of that stuff. I want to do my own thing entirely. Um, So, but some people, most, many people do want to conform to get, because they do see rightly or wrongly, they see what this society offers as being uh, worthwhile, valuable. They want it. They want to be a part of it. They like, it looks good to them. You know, they want to be in the army. They want to play in the NFL. They want to be on TV in In those way, in mainstream ways, right? That's uh, right. That's I mean, the NFL people. seems kind of cool,
1: but um,
0: I mean, it's not bad. Yeah. yeah not I know what you mean, though. I know yeah. what you mean. Right. It does. Right. They are pretty cool for, yeah, for most people. Those are very cool things. And I understand why they're cool. I get it, you know. Um, this, this civilization, American civilization in 2023 still has a whole lot to offer people. That's like really pleasurable. You know, I get it. Uh, tremendous rewards on offer here. It's not like we're living in Yemen, you know, where I'd be like, you want to merge your identity with the nation state of Yemen. Okay. <laughs> i <Right, laughs> you going to go for that exactly. But, um, <clears throat> except some pride, which, you know, is valuable to people and that shouldn't be discounted either. And a totally irrational, totally irrational thing. Nation, national pride it is of course and i'm i've been arguing that it's self-destructive but it's what sent pat tillman to afghanistan you know i mean he it's really powerful right. for people it's really really powerful for people he was going to be an nfl player and a millionaire and he chose to go to afghanistan and die there for this reason mm-hmm. he's a great example of this like why you should avoid <laughs> merging your identity with a fucking nation state they'll get you killed So something that I
1: worry about is that a lot of the forms of rebellion nowadays are just like, just bad, just, just ineffective, Agreed. self-destructive. Agreed. Yes.
0: Yes. You know? And nothing, nothing that's valuable to me. I don't see anything valuable in it in like what happened in 2020. I don't think i seeing anything valuable in the trans movement, the way that it is. Um, yeah. the A lot of, a lot of the rebellion in popular culture, I find to be just nihilistic. Um
1: right and i see this among um, among you know the nominal right as sure. well right I, I see this among people who are basically just posting whatever the opposite of the mainstream opinion is at any given point mm-hmm. in time just like just for the sake shit, of posting shit the posters? opposite of whatever shit the, posters? their opinion is not even i don't know I, there are some shit posters i like right sure. there there are ways to be a clever shit poster mm-hmm. but it it's like it, it's this instinctual opposition, you know, right. this kind of like unthinking mm-hmm. thing uh, where, where where it's also completely beholden to the mainstream, right? If you just post, you know, whatever the opposite of the mainstream is, then you're like, in a way, you're 100% subservient to them, right? The, yeah. the correlation is negative mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and I don't know, I, I worry about this. So like, what's the what's the healthy way mm-hmm. of opposition besides, you know, not merging your identity with the Yeah, state?
0: I mean, you're talking about,
1: is there is there like an oppositional community nowadays? That's that, that's you know. I mean, so there's two there's this? two
0: different oppositions we're talking about. <clears throat> I've been counseling opposition to identifying with the nation state or the ruling class, however you want to define it. <clears throat> that's one thing. And then you you were talking about opposition to mainstream ideas. So an intellectual oppositionalism, which I think is just stupid. I mean, just it is just literally stupid because it requires no thinking. You know, you just. You find out what the mainstream's saying, and you say the opposite of it. So you don't have to be smart at all to do that. Um, That's not interesting to me.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's what people find their identity in. You know, there there are several. There's there's a lot of people who find their identity. Yeah, I follow
0: some people who do that, and then I sort of suss that out after a while, and I stop following them. Um, (laughs) But yeah, and this is what. And you know, some of them are extremely famous. Oh yes, indeed, (laughs) indeed, on both sides too. Um, for sure. Right. There's some complete morons on both sides who are have, you know, hundreds of thousands of followers. It's amazing. Um. So I don't know what, how to be oppositional. You know, I, I'm also an agorist. That's another piece of my, my puzzle. I, um mm-hmm. I think it's a great way to go. I mean, if you want, also, if you want to, if you want to come.
1: Sorry for the audience. What oh. does that mean?
0: Counter economics, so practicing, um, participating in economics that are outside the mainstream, that are either gray market or black market, um, outside the tax regime. You know,
1: doing things that right, right. The meme, the meme online is that it's like the tax evasion ideology.
0: That's part of it. I mean, that's certainly an important part of it, but that's not all of it. No, yeah. no. I mean, it's about like. For instance, you know, being a hairdresser requires license, getting a license <laughs> from the state <laughs> to be a hairdresser. It's insane. It's a it's ridiculous. Right. And so what <laughs> just- what to and it's mostly black women um, who do this um, that do independent. So what do what do most black women do? And this is where the slave culture comes back in. It's beautiful, uh, super ultra libertarian things in, in slave and black culture. Uh, they are the ones who don't get the licensing because they're generally poorer and they don't give a fuck about the nation state. They have no, they have not merged their identities with the nation state. So there's a huge black market among black female hairdressers in this country, um, massive, massive, massive. You can get your haircut, hair done if you're a black woman, um, easily at a place that the state doesn't even know exists. They don't pay taxes. They don't get. They haven't paid.
1: Right. Is this like the secret Indian immigrant restaurants? Yes. Do yes. You know about this. Yes. Right? Yeah, yeah. It's the same deal. Yes, okay. Exactly. Is that agorism? Hell yes. The, the Catholic yes. Indian restaurant. Those are, yeah. Those awesome, are
0: awesome. those are the heroes of agorism to me. That's who's on our Mount Rushmore. Those black women hairdressers in the hood who haven't gotten who don't have a license and don't pay taxes. Is there is there a more heroic figure in our society? Honestly, think about it. I mean, and they're making good money and when they gr- when they grew up in a public housing project and dropped out of high school and have three children with three baby daddies. Like, and they're making, and they're against all that, (laughs) they managed to make it by fucking the state over, or just not fucking the state over, by avoiding the state, evading the state, which is what we should all be aspiring to do. Like, there's no higher calling than that, I think. Um, And they're doing something they like to do. So I was gonna say, you know, if you wanna merge Things you're passionate about, you know, things you actually want to be doing with changing society. And I'm not saying you need to or should at all. I mean, if you want to just make money or do something that's fun, please do that. But if you want to change society, that's the way to go. I mean, be an agorist um, and evade the rules. So, yeah, just look at prohibition, you know, ultimately the black market becomes immigrants. As I said earlier, it was immigrants who did that. They were like, who's the nation? Who's America? I don't care. It's not me. And I, and I love wine. Um, So um, yeah, the gangsters, so-called gangsters of the of the 1920s, the mafia who did this Jewish and Italian gangsters, they disregarded the rules of their new country for obvious reasons because they just got here. So why should they be American? And so breaking the law was not immoral to them. See, that's the thing. It was not immoral to them because they came from a different culture with different morals. Um, what, morals in which drinking wine was not just okay, but it was expected, you know? So, right. right. Yeah. So that, so being, a, so-
1: <laughs> that that's, you know, that, that's your life tip. That is the legal <laughs> is, this is not legal advice. Um, but yeah, that, that's the, that's the, that's the life yeah. advice. Ego,
0: egoism and anarchism and, and agorism, I should say agorism and anarchism, I'm not an anarchist really, I guess. I don't know. I suppose I am. It's hard to say, but I, I, um, to me, I, I think you have to bite a few more bullets to get there. I don't know. <laughs> I just don't like any anarchist I've ever met. <laughs> so <laughs> so <laughs> I don't agree with them on most things. And, and a lot of left-wing anarchists are actually communists. They don't admit it, but they're just, when you ask them about like, or worse, they're liberals. I mean, a lot, I've known a bunch of anarchists. <laughs> or worse. Yeah, no, liberal. they are. That, um, they, I, went to college with a lot of guys who basically founded Antifa in Seattle. They were like the original black block protesters and WTO. They went there right after college in the late eighties and they kind of were a part of the mm-hmm. grunge rock scene and also the Antifa, the emergent Antifa world. And um, I forgot what I was going to say. What were we talking about? <laughs> they were.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just had it in my mind, you know, that there's like one picture from the COVID era of like, antifa protesters with n95s it's like
0: yeah oh just look well, right at yeah they become co-opted. right there oh yeah if you yeah. ask them about like a particular policy question they're all for national health care <laughs> you know they're also they're all for the state running welfare i mean they're like they're complete state liberals that's funny as fuck they're basically new deal liberals um so yeah i mean there's so there's this is why I say MAGA is the first truly radical and successful political movement in this country. Trump Trump yeah, Trump I'm is so Trump is the first. I think it's I think it's okay to say this. I think it makes sense to say this. He's the first truly radical president because he's the first president to call into question the empire. Um big deal. Mm-hmm. Even even
1: more than Andrew Jackson. Yeah. I don't uh, know. Uh, yeah, I, I could well let's hope hmm. let's hope he
0: doesn't get co-opted.
1: It will be very hmm. funny if Trump gets co-opted. Jackson, Jackson but, uh, was a He was a
0: militarist on he was an imperialist on horseback. What do you mean? He was all about conquering <laughs> conquering territory for America. He was all about the empire. They all have been.
1: Huh. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, it was great. It was great speaking yeah. with you. I'll I'll respect your time. Yeah. Thanks,
0: Brian. This was totally. great.
1: That was my episode with Thaddeus Russell. I hope you enjoyed it. As I said at the beginning, the best way to help the show is to let a friend know, either in person or online. And if your friend has similar interests, has similar habits, then they would probably enjoy the show as much as you. Like I said at the beginning, there's a big divide in, I think, what I imagined we were going to talk about and what we actually ended up talking about. And... Quite frankly, I don't have very long, complex thoughts on SAS or on mental illness or on many of the ideas that we discussed or that Thaddeus talked about, and I think you can tell throughout that episode. There's going to be more on this in the post-episode reflection, which you can hear if you are a From the New World subscriber, Uh, so you can go to FromThenew.world you can subscribe for some amount of money. The annual subscriptions are much cheaper, and uh, that is how uh, that is how you can find that episode. I'll go into that more in depth there. And some of the some of the questions that I think are raised my perspective on them and why I don't spend more time thinking about mental illness or about. Uh, Really what's, what Nietzsche calls kind of like the, the free spirit or the kind of jovial spirit, uh, more, more in that episode. You can also help the show uh, aside from letting a friend know and or subscribing to the Substack. You can also help the show by uh, leaving a five star review on any podcast app. You can help the show by leaving a comment. You can suggest some guests. Many of the guests end up on the show. And, of course, you can subscribe for another great episode next Monday. See you then.